Hey, it's Kristen. Welcome to Rational in Portland, where we say everything you can't say in Portland. Hi there. Welcome to Rational in Portland. I'm your host, Kristen. Thank you so much for joining us. If you want to get in touch with me, you can send me a message on Twitter. I'm at Rational in PDX, and you can also follow our show's Twitter feed there. Feel free to reach out. If you have an anonymous tip, you want to remain anonymous, I will protect your identity. Please feel free to send me any tips you might have some housekeeping matters. Thank you so much for all of the messages about the Lentz Neighborhood Livability Association episode. That was the last episode. I heard from Char Penny, who is on the LNLA board, and Char issued some corrections and some clarifications to the episode. She sent me an email, so I'm going to go ahead and and let you know what those are. Um, And I'll just read the email to you. Char said, we, meaning she and Dave, who were discussed in the LNLA episode, they are on the board of the Lentz Neighborhood Livability Association. In this email, Char says, first, we, meaning she and Dave, did not move because of fear of retribution nor do we keep a baseball bat at our front door. We moved because of the political climate in Portland. I did a survey over two years ago about the city's proposal of, quote, shelter to housing continuum, unquote, that focused on the city's intent to put in the pod housing without notifying the neighborhoods. That survey was distributed far and wide by people who used Twitter, Snapchat, and other social media sites. It had over 5,000 people answering those questions. The majority of the answers were people in favor of the plan and understanding what it meant for neighborhoods. I'm guessing it was all a setup because once they started placing the safe rest villages, neighbors appeared to be outraged that they were not informed. Again, the narrative was colored by the progressives and not the average homeowner in those neighborhoods. Commander Erica Hurley. Now remember, Commander Erica Hurley was discussed in the episode by Todd Littlefield and Juanita Swartwood as being a sort of liaison from the Portland Police Bureau who was actually actively helping the Lentz neighborhood, one of the few people working for the city who was helping to keep the Lentz neighborhood safe. Commander Erica Hurley, Shar says, became aware of our survey by her teenage daughter who announced to a friend how this group, which would be us, Shar says, was homeless haters. Commander Hurley jumped in to defend us because of a simple survey trying to let people know about this plan of the cities 
we are once again attacked by the public at large. Mainly, I would say the young progressives. Our entire reason for moving was not this attack or fear, but seeing no immediate change for Portland. I fear, as Jeff Gianola questioned, Jeff Gianola is a newscaster here in Portland. I fear, as Jeff Gianola questioned, is Portland over? I believe in my heart it is. It has progressed too far down the road of anarchy and chaos to reverse anytime soon. Second, the Lentz Neighborhood Association LNA. So that's the actual neighborhood board that is sanctioned by the city that is made up of elected officials and is given money by the city to operate. So Shar says the LNA is part of the reason that Lentz is in the state it is in. They encouraged and enabled the homeless to be in the Lentz neighborhood. Groups like East Portland Collective, EPC, former LNA chair Sabina Erdes, and PDX Saints Love in the Streets, Kristen Delahandy, have been serving the homeless for at least five years now, meeting them in Lentz Park and other venues to distribute clothing, food, water, and assortment of other goods, providing them with showers and facilities through other organizations. They are in favor of the Safe Rest Villages, and I can only assume they are getting grant money to continue to support their nonprofits. The LNA, as you mentioned, is a volunteer board of people who are governed by the city. Hence, they will do whatever the city agenda is and push that out to the neighborhoods. Third, we have had little luck with helping the unhoused. We were able to get a former neighbor who ended up on the street into housing through Home Forward close to two years ago, but have had little success other than that. We are a referring partner for Bybee Lakes Hope Center, and one of our members thought she had an interested homeless person, but once I sent her the paperwork, he disappeared into the ether. Fourth, we volunteer with New Hope Church formerly known as Mount Scott Church of God, with a program they started called Neighbor to Neighbor to help the elderly and disabled stay housed as long as physically possible by doing small projects and sometimes large around their homes. And she provided a link to me about the kinds of projects that they do. I'll go ahead and link to that on this episode. For instance, they do things like help older people tend to their yard and mow their lawns for them. And they assist with packing and distributing Thanksgiving dinners to kids in Lent schools. They're doing wonderful things. So I'll go ahead and link to the kinds of programs that Char and Dave are involved in that help the elderly and disabled. According to Char in this email, These projects help the elderly and disabled stay housed as long as physically possible. And their only involvement with the unhoused is cleaning up around their campsites as organizers for solve events under the LNLA. We were doing these on a monthly basis up until the weather turned too hot. 
our interaction with the unhoused is really minimal. Another member of our group wanted to partner with Burgerville to give out gift cards if we could entice the unhoused in that area to come out and help us clean up. My criteria for that was to have city-paid outreach workers come out with us and help them with services and or shelter placement. The city told us they didn't have the manpower to do that. My takeaway is they don't wish to end the homeless industry. If a group is willing to connect with the unhoused and offer them an incentive to work, why would outreach workers not be willing to come out? There are way too many nonprofits making money off this homeless complex. It's not that complicated, but they don't wish to address the underlying issues of drug addiction and mental illness. So that was from Sharpenny. And those were the sort of the corrections and the clarifications that I received from her about the LNLA episode. I also received a follow-up email from Todd Littlefield, who was on the LNLA episode. And he said that he, he had talked to Char and David after the episode, and he was surprised that they didn't have a baseball bat at their front door. He was surprised that they didn't move because of threats. He agrees that they probably moved because of several factors, but he thinks it was expedited by the threats, at least in in his mind. That was his perception. And he also said, I know what my eyes, this is from Todd Littlefield's email, I know what my eyes saw. I'm assuming he's talking about the baseball bat and what I was told and felt and stand by my statements made on the podcast. He says, Char and David are special and my affinity for them is unabashed. So he has absolutely no ill will for Char and David. And I don't think they have any towards him either. I think they just had a difference of of perception there. Um, Char said, in addition, she sent me another email explaining that... She, um, she she wanted to make sure that everybody understood the boundaries of Lentz. The boundaries of Lentz, east side of 82nd Avenue, south side of Clatsop, north side of Powell, and the east boundary fluctuates between 112th on Mount Scott Boulevard to 110 beyond Foster. Her solution, Char's solution, she says, to these homeless encampments and the homeless crisis she says, would be to start enforcing the laws. She says the police used to be able to do warrant checks on the people living along the Springwater Corridor, open up the empty pods in Vernus Jail and start arresting the criminals, hold them until they're prosecuted, open up mental health facilities and deal with the mentally ill. Some of these folks will need help the rest of their lives. Hire the people in the nonprofits that think they are helping the homeless to run them. After all our tax dollars are paying their salaries anyway, might as well use our money for good. Then you can find out who was actually homeless and get them into housing. Boom. I'm guessing Alan Evans would help. Now, Alan Evans is is running the uh, Bybee Lakes Hope Center. She says, I'm guessing Alan Evans would help coordinate something like this. She also says that she does not consider the uh, queer affinity village or the BIPOC village a threat to neighborhoods, but Lentz is getting the hardcore drug addicts and the mentally ill. And that says a lot, she says, about what the city thinks about Lens. And I think this dovetails really nicely into our episode today, which is about 
people who are leaving Portland in droves. Char and Dave are obviously two of those people who did that. Todd, as we heard on the LNLA episode, is probably leaving Portland. And, you know, I was just scrolling through the news today and read an article in KGW on KGW.com. It was, so it's from August 15th, 2022. And the headline is, It's Scary. North Portland families sell their homes to escape homeless camps and crime. Homeless camps along the Peninsula Crossing Trail have prompted some nearby families to sell their homes. The article says, For sale signs line what were once sought after neighborhoods in North Portland. Many families are selling their homes due to an increase in violence and homeless camps in that area. It makes you not feel that great about living here, said Greg Dilks, who has lived in North Portland for 30 years. It makes living in the neighborhood harder, not as congenial as it could be. Dilks said the homeless camps along the Peninsula Crossing Trail near his home have changed the area. It's the first time in a long time that we've actually seriously thought about moving, he said. Mental health, drug addiction, and just not having access to housing, added Mark Smith, who shares a backyard with the camp. Smith said he and his partner often don't feel safe walking alone or tending to their gardens. Every day, if you go from one end of the street to the other, you're confronting some very difficult situations, people in really dire straits. It's a little scary because I know there is mental illness and that concerns me. We are the most harmless people you'll ever meet, said Titi Sanchez, who lives in one of the camps along the Peninsula Crossing Trail. They shouldn't be scared of us. For what? Because we live outside? That's the only reason you should be scared of us, because we live outside. So if we lived in four walls and a house and stuff, would you still be scared of us? North Portland neighbors told KGW at least three families along McKenna Avenue are leaving due to nearby homeless camps. Real estate broker Lauren Inquinta sees it firsthand. I would say the migration of the suburbs I've seen quite a bit in the last two years, she said. Most people don't want to have to worry about if they can leave their car parked in their driveway overnight without maybe having it broken into. It's a pretty testy subject. When working with clients, Iganiga now vets the areas to see if there are nearby homeless camps. It's neighborhood by neighborhood. You can be driving through North Portland and you're in this lovely area where there's no issues and then you can make a turn around a corner and have homeless camps there. It's kind of sad. I've been doing this 10 years here in Portland and it's changed quite a bit. The city is planning to build a safe rest village along Peninsula Crossing Trail where many homeless campers in the area could go, but there's no timeline for when that project will be completed. And when it is completed, it will be a temporary village that will only be there about three years. After that, there are plans for a permanent affordable housing development to take its place. As for the people currently camping along the trail, the city's safe rest village team said Portland's impact reduction program outreach workers and navigation teams have visited weekly since before the safe rest village was announced to offer them services shelter options and other resources to meet their immediate needs additionally the safe rest village team has met with some of the campers and many have expressed interest in the outdoor shelter model well isn't that interesting they have been the city has been meeting with them and offering shelter and services, and they were, they're obviously refusing that because they're 
staying in these camps. Along these same lines in regard to the exodus from Portland, Portland Monthly did an article August 16th, 2022 by Jacob Fenton called Portland voters have almost always been willing to raise their own taxes. And the question raised in the article is whether that era is ending. There's a section of the article that talks about the exodus from Portland, and it says that Ethan Chen, a digital marketer and entrepreneur, moved to downtown Portland from the Bay Area in 2019. After the pandemic struck, his wife started feeling unsafe downtown after dark. Two new taxes in 2020 on higher incomes also pinched. I wonder what those were. I mean, they were that was clearly the preschool for all program in from Multnomah County and the Metro homelessness tax. Chen stressed he was happy to pay the taxes if they result in something. Stepping away from this article for a minute, virtually every Portlander I have talked to, th- that's exactly their sentiments. They are happy to pay whatever the city wants them to pay, as long as they can see some kind of return on their investment, any return. And instead, the city's in a precipitous decline. The more money we pay, the worse it gets. Going back to the article, it says to relocate, Chen and his wife compared Beaverton and Vancouver, Washington. But Washington State's lack of income tax made the choice simpler. The savings and income tax from moving out of Oregon pays for almost all of our mortgage every month. I moved and I got a free house, he said. This will continue. It is absolute lunacy to expect people living in Portland to continue to write blank checks to the city while they watch things get precipitously worse. Let me talk to you a little bit about how I met our guest today, Bruce Garrett, who also has left the city of Portland. On May 17th of this year, Portland and Multnomah County, where Portland sits, and and Metro, which is a third layer of government that, in my opinion, we don't need, but it exists, and it is totally consistent with Portland's weird form of governance that we have this third layer called Metro, but Metro encompasses Multnomah County, where Portland sits, as well as Washington and Clackamas counties. So there were elections in all these layers of government in the Portland area. And voting for the primary elections closed May 17th, and Portlanders, residents of Multnomah County, residents of the Portland metro region had a choice. Do we reelect incumbents and basically rubber stamp the status quo, say that we approve, Or do we vote in somebody different? A number of things happened on May 17th. First, Joanne Hardesty, although she did not receive enough votes to remain in her seat unchallenged and to ignore the general election, she did receive enough votes to move on to the general election. And she will face... Renee Gonzalez in the general, but she received enough votes to move forward. And I think there were a number of people in the city that were hoping to see a runoff between Renee Gonzalez and Vadim Mazirsky, a runoff between two newcomers. But what will happen 
is that the incumbent, Joanne Hardesty, will run against Renee Gonzalez, political newcomer, in the general election. Something else that happened May 17th. Dan Ryan, who's currently serving on Portland City Council, garnered enough votes that he did keep his seat for another term. He does not have to face anyone in the general election. This is the same Dan Ryan who started these safe rest shelters in order to, according to Sam Adams, who was assisting him with this program, Willamette Week did a whole article on this, in order to move homeless people from downtown into neighborhoods. Why? To increase commerce downtown. And in doing so, and in opening these safe rest shelters in neighborhoods near schools, the city has thus far refused to commit to screening the inhabitants of Dan Ryan's safe rest shelters for felonies or even more important sex offenses, even though they're going into neighborhoods and near schools. This is also the same Dan Ryan who introduced Ordinance 190478. That's the law that effectively allows homeless people to bed down 150 feet away from a preschool, elementary or junior high school, 100 feet away from a high school, and 10 feet away from the entrance to a residence or the entrance to a business. You heard those last two parts, right? They can set up camp within 10 feet away from the entrance to a residence or a business. This is ordinance 190478, and the city will not prioritize moving those as long as they're 10 feet away from your door. That same Dan Ryan sailed ahead, and he's going to keep his seat with no challenger in the general election because he garnered so many votes. In regard to Metro, that third layer of government we just talked about, there was a Metro council seat that was up for grabs. What was so interesting about that Metro council seat is Metro has suddenly become very powerful because they control the purse strings for the homeless tax that's expected to raise, according to a recent story by the LA Times, $2.5 billion by 2030. In fact, in 2021, between July 1st and December 31st alone, Metro distributed $4.3 million among the three counties. Since the start of the new year, $38.1 million of that homeless tax money was handed out. That's according to the Oregonian, an April 2022 article. Now, Terry Prigrigsby ran against Mr. Wong, and she raised an important issue involving what she perceived, and I, what I think many people in Portland perceive to be a conflict of interest that is allowed to go on in metro government and that Mr. Wong was was directly implicated in, according to Ms. Pre-Rigsby, who was on this podcast. In fact, this conflict was so interesting that Nigel Jock was reported on it in Willamette Week. And it was uh, May 4th, 2022 is when that story ran. Mr. Wong was the interim co-director of the nonprofit Asian Pacific American Network of Oregon. He gets his nonprofit, 
gets grant funding from Metro, the council he sits on. We learned on May 17th that Terry Pre-Rigsby lost that election, meaning that Mr. Wong will keep his seat on Metro Council despite that allowable, some would say, conflict of interest. Certainly allowable, no question. But I'm saying some people would say that's, myself included, my opinion, that's a conflict of interest. It's totally allowable. He's staying in power. As far as the Multnomah County chair position is concerned, that seat was also up for grabs. Who is the Multnomah County chair? What do they do? Well, they run the Multnomah County Council. Multnomah County is the county in which Portland sits. The Multnomah County chair prepares the executive budget. The Multnomah County Council controls the purse strings for Multnomah County. There are various cities that exist in that county, Most, the biggest of which is, is Portland. Multnomah County Council in 2021 divested more than $2 million from the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office and the District Attorney's Office. Some of the things that they did fund were, and I'm quoting here from the Multnomah County website's budget page, they funded something called Community Partnerships and Capacity Building in Public Health. Again, I'm, I'm quoting from Multnomah County's own budget page. Here's what it says that they funded. This is one of many things. The county will contract with the Nonprofit Association of Oregon to provide technical assistance to smaller BIPOC organizations and contract for culturally responsive maternal child health services in the African and Latinx communities. Finally, funding will go to expand Pacific Islander and Latinx coalitions, as well as the Future Generations Collaborative. I have no idea what that says. It is a word salad beyond measure, and the only way in which it could be more crazy is if they changed the word maternal to birthing person. We learned the evening of May 17th that the two candidates for Multnomah County Chair the pe- two of the people who funded this project, who divested money from the sheriff's office and the DA, two of those candidates who would go on to the general election were also both incumbents. None of the outsiders, including Shariah Mayfield, who was on this podcast, were elected. In short, May 17th, we learned that except for Joanne Hardesty's city council seat, the rest of the incumbents in the county and the city would remain in power. And we learned that there was enough support for Joanne Hardesty to push her to the general election. Apparently, this was incredibly upsetting to a lot of you. I get email messages and Twitter direct messages all the time from listeners. And it might take me a while, but I do read and I do appreciate every single one of them keep sending them. Thank you so much. And you can find me at Rational MPDX on Twitter. You can direct message me there. That night, May 17th, I received more messages from all of you listeners in one evening than I'd ever received 
in 24 hours before. And I received them all that night when the results were pouring in and newscasters were making preliminary calls about how races were going to go. I received far, far too many to read that evening or even within the week. In time though, I would learn that the messages were all very similar. Because of the volume of messages I received, there were some outliers, sure, but in general, the messages I received were demographically similar in the following ways. They were from professionals with advanced degrees, people in their 30s and 40s. They were, without exception with this one, there were no outliers to this one, they were all Biden voters and people who identified in their messages as Democrats. What was remarkable also about the messages that I received on May 17th was that either Everybody who sent them had already moved and was explaining why they had already moved. They were in process of selling their house or moving out of their apartment, letting their lease expire, or they were going to do that. And they were all either expressing relief at having done so based on this primary election Um, or declaring that the reason they were moving was because they had lost hope due to the primary election. The people I heard from the night of May 17th who ultimately moved out of the area because they feared for their safety as well feel a deep dissatisfaction with the direction of the city. And given the election results of May 17th, they did not see the city changing in any meaningful way that would otherwise compel them to stay here. They told me they're fleeing civic disorder. One of the people who sent me a message on May 17th is my guest on this episode, Bruce Garrett. Bruce sold his Portland home and relocated to a suburb. He stayed within the state, but he relocated after trying to navigate raising a young family in Southeast Portland amidst needles, gunshots, and audible domestic disputes. He will describe all of that for you in detail on this episode. Here's my guest, Bruce Garrett. You literally will see junk cars, broken down cars, and then the second you cross into Clackamas County, which isn't too far from there, that changes. <laughs> and so, I mean... It, yeah, yeah, that's right. No, no, it, it's... Um, so we've been there for about a month and a half, and it's, like, life-changing, quite frankly. It's... Uh, peaceful and you just feel more comfortable and at ease living in a place where, uh, you know, you're not, I mean, quite frankly, sort of scared or disturbed. And I mean, some of it's a safety issue, but some of it honestly is just uh, the things that we come across in this city uh, are not things that we should be seeing day to day. Tell, say more about that. What were you coming across? Can I, I want to show you this video just to kind of set the scene a little bit. So I have it saved here. This is the night, literally the night before I move. I live in South, Southeast Portland and um, the moving truck is showing up the next morning and my kid and my wife go to the park and I, um, I hear this commotion. And so I'm going to see if I can get the sound up here. This is right by your house. It's a domestic disturbance. 
And so I'm... This is just a domestic disturbance? It sounded like a riot. Yeah. It's the night before, it's the night before I leave. And I, so I stopped right there. I stopped and you just caught, caught a little bit. You could tell from the, from the, the sounds that people were screaming and upset and there were loud noises. A lot noises. of people. Yeah, there's about 15 people out there. And so I stopped the video right here because I realized um, that this person is laying helpless on the ground and is being beaten. Oh, my God. And so um, so I stopped the video. And I called 911. You, you saw a beating the yeah. night before you actually yeah. physically moved but Before out of we moved out of Portland, it's uh, I it couldn't make it up. Like Literally, the moving truck is showing up at 8 o'clock the next morning. That's about 7.30 at night. And so I, I, I just, I, I was just, Taken aback, and so I said, "Oh shit!" I call call nine one one because I thought this person might get beaten to death out here. Um, I, I didn't know what, and there was there was a commotion. There were four, three or four cars pulled over, and people. Your wife kinda, and your kids saw this too, or they were they gone. were at the park, and okay. I texted her. I said, "Don't!" I said, "Don't come, Don't come back. Yeah, stay stay where you are." And so I um, and this this is a bad scene, and um, these these kids, there's probably eight year old, ten year old, eleven year old, are out there kind of too, and I know these kids because they kind of play in our yard and. So uh, I, I call 911, and, of course, I'm, I go on hold when I call. Yeah. It says, please don't hang up. Please stay on the line. And, of course, I don't because I'm just, like, I'm just trying to get a hold of my wife, and I'm kind of monitoring the situation. Yeah, I don't know like, what's going to happen. I don't have time to wait for yeah. this. So they call me back, and the guy picks up the phone, and that kind of commotion that you heard, that's still happening. And, and I kind of described the scene, and he said, he said, I can hear it. I can, I can hear people that sound like they're very upset, and there's – uh, something really bad happening right now. And I said, yeah, I said, that, that's absolutely right. And he kind of pauses. This is the operator, of course. And he said, um, can you tell, you know, safely from where you are, is the person still on the ground? And I said, I can't tell. And he goes, can you tell if anybody's bleeding? And I said, no, I can't tell. And he says, okay. He goes, well, um, thanks for reporting it. We'll send somebody out there. And then no police ever showed up. And and the point, I guess, from this story is not the fact that there is a domestic disturbance or a fight that's going to happen. I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, you'll want it to happen. And I, I do think we are seeing more of that, unfortunately. But that's really, I think that the point of this story is the fact that the police never showed up. Because, boy, with, with the audio that the operator was able to get and sort of those screening questions like, well, is the person still on the ground? Like, well, was that the threshold for whether or not police are going to show up to something like this? Because what I, and I, I'm not an expert in this, but from what I, you know, my concern is, is that, um, you know, the scene might have dispersed, but uh, you investigate these things or you show up to find out what happened because I don't know, that person might go get a fucking gun and kill the other person. I mean, I mean, these are very. It's a very serious situation when you have that m many screaming people and somebody being beaten on the side of of the road. I was, and so yeah, I, I, I mean, that was the night before we move, and I'm just thinking to myself that night, like, wow, you know, this is the right call. And uh, leading up to that, um, that was one bad incident. It happened to be the night before we left, but there was um, a long three. I mean, what started it really was. A long three-day weekend, we come back into town and we like go to pull into our driveway and I just see that this clutter down there and it was a bunch of orange caps and somebody had dumped a box of needles out on the street right in front of these kids. I just mentioned those kids where those kids play. They ride their bikes up and down our driveway. 
And Somebody dropped needles on your driveway. Oh yeah, there must have been twenty of them. Yeah, and I, I don't know. They probably weren't. I, they, I don't know. Were if they, they probably, open? I could, I didn't even tell because yeah. I just had my neighbor clean it up. Um, but I knew what they were. They were needles. And I and and like my my wife that day, she's like, we're moving. You know, that was a very disturbing thing. But it had been a pattern of other things where. Um, I mean, it's kind of a joke to have a camera on your house in Portland. I don't know why. I mean, it's honestly, know. we, we, we got rid of ours. We got rid of ours because you don't even. I turned off all the notifications. There you I, go. I just, yeah. I didn't want to know because our, our camera faces, well, like most people's, our camera faces a street in the front of the house and my bedroom isn't in the front of the house, but my oldest is, and that's where both of them, both of my kids like to sleep. And I realized there was all this stuff going on every single night right outside of her window, and I wasn't going to get any sleep with these waking up to a whole bunch of notifications about what was going on outside my kid's window every single night. I mean, I live on the east side too. So, I, yeah, I, I think predominantly this is happening on the east side. Yeah. Um, we lived on the west side before for almost a decade, and I didn't – but, but, of course, that was earlier too. I mean, it was pre-Charlie Hales which is where, where I, I think um, a lot of the this really started to go downhill here in Portland because he started that safe sleep. Do you, were you here for that? No. That was in 2016. No. I, I, so I lived in Seattle for about 10 years. Which is its own thing. Which, I mean, it's as bad or worse, and depending on where you are. Uh, and then I was there for about 10 years. And, and then I, I've been here for about four. And so... Um, I, I think and this is, you know, when I had initially reached out to you, I, I had a lot of, I, it was a kind of an emotional thing. And I, I think that, um, you know, the, the bottom line is, is that, you know, my wife and I, we didn't want to leave the city. We, we like the city. We, I, I, we both grew up in a small town and there's nothing wrong. I, I like small towns. I'm all for that. And I think that's good for some people, but that wasn't my thing. I, I liked urban activity. I liked the, the vibe of the city, the buzz, the commercial activity, the arts and the culture and smart people, all the interesting people, educated things and, and happening and events. And, and I liked that the, the cities, I mean, at least compared to the rural areas, even in the Pacific Northwest tended to be, uh, diverse and had different people from different backgrounds and different settings. And so, I mean, these are all things that I still really appreciate. And I wasn't one of those people who, and I had a kid, yes. And I, but I, I never wanted to go to the suburbs and get like a bigger house and have a big yard. And that was never something I wanted. We moved out of necessity because um, quite frankly, it wasn't safe. And it became an every weekend thing, you know, it, after a long uh, work week, we'd sit down and have a glass of wine on a Friday night. And, and like clockwork, there were gunshots. And that's just, that's every weekend thing. And it's very, it's very unsettling. And I don't know if people know this. And, and if people, to the extent that they hear it and they just say, oh, it's not a big deal. Like, and they kind of go into their extreme ideological liberal talking points about gun violence. Like, no, gun violence is terrible. We shouldn't have that. We should. We, it shouldn't be just an acceptable part of life where we hear gunshots every weekend. That's not okay. It's not okay for anybody. Not for the people that are experiencing gun violence, or the bystanders, or the. I mean, do you? What if you want to go to the store at ten o'clock at night because you run out of something? Like I wouldn't. We wouldn't go out at night. We wouldn't even get in the car and go out at night because I didn't know if if how safe it would be. And that's um, that's just kind of you know what it came to, and we, we just we had to move um, because. Uh, 
I think safety primarily, but also it's just depressing. It is, it is so depressing because if, you know, from where we live, we would drive down Holgate, for example, from downtown. And so we cruise through a lot of, of, of Portland and it quite frankly is just, it's, it's sad and it's doesn't, it doesn't make you feel good. And, and so I think that there, there can be kind of a twofold response to that, which is, and sometimes you hear the criticism of that as well. You know, woe is you having to experience that Well, those people have to live in it. And I say to you to that point, absolutely. So let's do something about it. Let's actually help these people. And that's not happening. And I, and I know that you have talked about this a bunch and, and, and your guests have too, but, uh, you know, letting people waste away on the streets and suffer from mental illness and drug addiction in the name of compassion is absolutely insane. It, it is, it, that, that is a very broken way of thinking and it has led to the problems that we have now. So I don't know about, the, I mean, maybe you should tell me about, about the history of how we've got here. I've seen the parallels between the, the major, and it's only the West, really the West Coast cities. I, and I think you've talked about on your show, I think it was your show, going to Chicago and how it wasn't yeah. like that. I was in New York last November. Oh, New York is pristine oh my God. compared to Portland. It's insane. New York, which had this reputation, of course, this was the 70s and the 80s, but even into the 90s, people, oh, New York, dirty, scary. Oh my God, no. no. New York is, is a beautiful city. Yeah. It is everything that it's, I- It practically sparkles compared to- <laughs> And what's so funny, so you were there recently. What's so funny is um, my husband and I go there a fair amount. And when you go there now, post COVID, everybody talks about what a shithole it's become and how crime ridden it's become. And uh, I'm like, you should see Portland. <laughs> no. This, this is, <laughs> I'll take this any day. I mean, we walk around at night post-COVID there all the time. Yeah. And, and we feel much safer in New York City than we do in Portland. Or yeah. Seattle, or San, frankly, San Francisco, which I've also been to post-COVID. It looks like Dresden after the bombing. And and let's not pretend that the politics of New York City are that of Newport News, Virginia, or Indianapolis, Indiana. This is a very left, highly taxed, progressive, yeah. liberal bastion. I you, mean, the mayor's masking toddlers. Right, and, and that's a different issue. And <laughs> it I is. and I actually like I I do like a lot of what Eric Adams I do is too. doing. I like what I, he's doing on crime. Boy, I I, I I like what he's saying on you know, crime. We disagree on that issue uh, completely, and I that it, it, it is it's just it's so weird about how. It's almost like people on the West Coast haven't been anywhere else because I, I found that, um, like you said, people who are more entrenched in their tribalism, I found that when I do openly complain or express dissatisfaction with the quality of life issues that you mentioned and just sort of the open air lawlessness and, and drug use, the response I get is, well, Portland's gotten bigger. It's life in the big city. I'm like, have you have you been to a big city lately? Have you been to some of the bigger cities in the world? Because they don't look like this. And Portland is not big. No. Yeah. It, and I think I I I think about that too because I, I get this response, and sometimes I'm thinking like, well, I want to like strike this fine line between like, you know, being critical, but like for a purpose. Like the reason that I am critical of so many of the issues that are affecting our city is because I want it to be better. Yeah. If I didn't care, I, I wouldn't be here. 
and I'm, I know this isn't much, I'm not doing like what a lot of people are, and which is really starting to speak up publicly or run for office or be involved in those kind of well, ways. Well, you are speaking up publicly today. That's true, that's true. So it's, I guess it's a start, but but I guess what, what I'm saying is that, that you know, if I, if, if I didn't care or if I just wanted to retreat, I would do that, you know, and, and the fact that, I, that, that these things are concerning because I care about the community. And so I think you have to strike that balance between also this balance of just being delusional about about the issues. And I, I saw this response and I don't know if I'll be able to pull it up, but this, you know, there there is, and a lot of times this happens on Twitter, of course, yes, but, uh, right. you know, there's, there's this sort of banter about sort of the decay in the city and this person responds, um, what are you talking about? This city is easily one of the most beautiful in the country and property values continue to skyrocket. Those are completely separate things, property values Agreed. versus how beautiful the city is. But I'm just thinking, uh, yeah, I mean, well, beautiful, that's subjective, but how? Can you describe that? And can you compare it to how it was six, seven years ago? I don't know when this really started. It happened close to Seattle. I started, the, I saw the, down roll, the, the downward spiral in Seattle, and then I got to Portland about four years ago. And then, of course, the pandemic was just like gasoline on that fire in terms of how things just fell apart. But um, I, I don't think I, I, I think that that is um, sort of unre uh, an unreasonable sort of subjective belief that the city is uh, is is one of the most beautiful in the country. When I go th walk through downtown, I, I work downtown, and as I walked, you know, down uh, to your uh, office today and got a coffee, I'm just thinking, damn, this is not beautiful. The, the, a lot of the windows are boarded up. There's graffiti everywhere. It's, there's trash. Um, and that's not to mention the, I mean, the, the encampments are something completely different. And, and no, these, these aren't beautiful things. Um, I, I joke with my wife, like I, downtown Portland sometimes resembles like a post-war Bosnia. Like it's very depressed. It's like bleak and, you can see that something used to be happening here, but it no longer is. And it's like the city has been abandoned. Now, will that get better post COVID? I, I do think so. I think some of this will just, will, will resolve with more people being, you know, in the city and being active downtown. But uh, we need also major pol uh, policy and political changes, I think, to implement that. And I'm, I'm not sure if that's gonna happen, but but tell me, because I haven't been, you know, I'm, I'm new to Portland in four years. What, I mean, what has the, how, how do we get to this point, I guess? Well, I don't, I don't know. I haven't put my finger on it, you know, precisely. I, I don't know that it can be measured in a some kind of objective or scientific way. But just given given what I observed and given the the amount, I, I mean, I've only been doing doing this, talking to people and recording it for a short amount of time, really less than a year, but the amount of people that I've been able to talk to who are either running for office or in office, um, who who are kind of more on the inside or have more of an inside track, it seems to have started here, the, the decline seems to have started here in Portland when Charlie Hales, who was the mayor at the time, who, who was living on the east side, um, I th maybe still is. I no one has heard a peep from him really since he left. I, th I think he kind of left in disgrace because he started this safe sleep deal. He started the acceptance of urban camping really in Portland. I mean, we call it urban camping. It's really, really the open air drug markets, the open air lawlessness, the failure to 
recognize or pay attention to somebody in distress who is who's clearly unable to house themselves and is now pitched a tent on a sidewalk. Mm-hmm. And his, I, I, the, it was popular. I mean, I, obviously, I, I don't know if it still is. I, I think we'll see with the general election, for instance, like with Renee Gonzalez versus Joanne Hardesty, mm-hmm. whether people are still into this. But I think at the time, most people felt like it was the compassionate thing to do, and his policy was go ahead and pitch a tent and and just have it up by the he, – he said have it up by the morning. That was his deal. And I, yeah. I remember thinking just because I, I had homeless family members and I had dealt with this personally, I just remember thinking these people are, are maybe incapable of waking up when the sun rises, and they're certainly incapable of – taking a a policy that you're rolling out and like adhering to it. I mean, these are people who are are not functional in any sort of various ways and whose brain has been hijacked by many possibly overlapping things that are extremely serious. And the idea that you're going to roll out some policy in the name of compassion and they'll just follow it is insane. And, and then and then people were mad about this this idea that they had to pack up in the morning. So then, and of course, yeah. it, it, I mean, anybody could have anybody with a brain could have predicted this. But if you're entrenched, I think if and I'm a third generation native, so it's like I don't, I don't know why I'm I, I don't I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just the personal experience with with mental illness and drug addiction that enables me to, with family members in that, that enables me to see it more clearly. But um, if you're not entrenched in sort of the narrative, you can, like most people outside of Portland, I think, um, who aren't California or, or Washington State, kind of see, I mean, you start, once you see it, you can't not see it. They start to use Portland as a example of lunacy in everyday conversation. Yeah. And um, I, I think most people could have seen any of that coming. And then from there, it just sort of spiraled on. Like that was around the time we moved to the east side and people were upset that they had to pack up in the morning. And so they were saying, okay, well, we're going to go. I remember them saying, we're going to go camp on Reed College Place in the median and we'll just stay, because that's where Charlie Hales lives in East Moreland, and we'll just stay there indefinitely. And I remember thinking, well, this would never, I, I think even if the mayor was living on the west side, and of course later Ted Wheeler was, um, I don't know, I mean, I think I think he dealt with a fair amount of shit outside of his home, and as we know, his condo in mm-hmm. the Pearl District, which was at once one time pristine, was set on fire. I mean, I think it's just sort of spread to all quadrants of the city, but I do think it really did start um, on the east side, and I don't, I don't know why. P- part of it might be, I mean, a lot of it was Charlie Hales was there, and they people wanted to make a demonstration out of it. And the, a lot of the people who were engaged in these demonstrations were not homeless people themselves, but they were the quote unquote houseless advocates. Yeah. And I don't know if you experienced any. Well, I mean, so I mean, this this is I think this is a good segue because. Um, I mean, first, to your point about packing up and leaving in the morning, and I think you, that's a very astute point. And I remember 
um, I'd have to find the article, but Joanne said something as part of this, like, quote unquote, advocacy, like, we need to have uh, this board that needs to oversee these issues and that, that the unhoused need to have seats on that board. And I'm thinking, wait, you think that the people that, and of course, this, I, I do not say this judgmentally, just as a matter of, of, of fact, that if they're struggling so bad that they live on the streets, they're that sick. they can't have a, a roof and, and they're either suffering from mental illness, drug addiction, or some sort of other antisocial uh, behavior that keeps them there, they're not going to sit on a board and like take notes and and, and part, participate in a, in a civic discussion. I mean, and that's... That, that's just a talking point. And so this is, I think, a really good example. I came across this and I saved it. And um, there was a story, I believe this is from California, where there was a, a group of people who were trying to help uh, uh, unhoused people that were suffering from addiction. Like they wanted to remove them from the encampment and get them into treatment. And they were blocked. This is the, how the story goes. They were blocked by uh, homeless advocates, and one of the people in the camp died of a drug overdose. So it was Where like- Where is this from? Yeah, I, this is 2021. I can't tell by looking at it, but I believe it's from California. And the reason I say that is because uh, Michael uh, Schellenberger, are you familiar with him? And that's, what a sad thing that yeah, he- Yeah, I really admire Michael Schellenberger. I think His it, book, San Francisco, is great. Yeah. I know he's, he's got a book about environmentalism previous to that that I, I haven't read, but I've heard is great too. And so, so, so he he sort of uh, shares that story in a, in a in a tweet, and then his tweet reads, and I'll just read it because I think it's it's so perfectly put. And he has a way to really describe his issues. He says, "This is Schellenberger. Uh, many people who call themselves quote unquote homeless advocates aren't. Rather, they are ideologues who oppose getting mentally ill and drug addicted people the help that they need." And they are, this is the best part here, and they are often more motivated by hatred of modern society than by compassion for people in need. And I think that that is a perfect quote that really uh, encapsulates the core, um, I guess if we call it far left liberal ideology that has overtaken Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Vancouver, BC, all of these quote unquote left coast cities. And I say that as somebody, this will be, this election will be uh, 18 years since I voted for John Kerry. I voted for Democrats every year since. And I don't know if that'll end. I voted for John Kerry too. I I don't know if that's going to end, but that was my first election. And so, I mean, I have a pretty good streak of, I guess, if I have to say it, progressive credentials. Um, But, but, but this has gone, this has gone too far. And, and, and I think that this, this, this ideology, this extreme liberal ideology that's overtaken Portland uh, was always there. It was um, kind of always in, 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 in the corner and it was sort of ignored. And then with the, as, as the, the, the divide has grown and the tribalism has expanded, that has become the popular um, sort of political opinion although I hope that changes this November, it might not, but um, I, I think it's overtaken it. And so, and because I, I was thinking, and, and I, I've had so many like inflection points and, and I, I want to check myself because I don't want to be somebody who just gets like, if I'm just listening to your podcast all the time or right. following all the- You don't want to be in a people, bubble. Yeah, and so I, I have to listen to what people, when they say Portland's the most beautiful city in the country, I have to listen, okay? And like, I have to be part of that conversation, but- if you don't mind, let me just kind of share some of these things because I I had I, I really thought about what it meant for me to be a progressive liberal. And so, for example, one of the things uh, as a traditional progressive liberal is that we should take care of the less fortunate and that we should give them aid and that we need to keep like 
corporations in check and that we need to have this balance between um, you know, capitalism and the, the people that aren't well. And so like social safety nets are a great example. And, and that has become now that the less fortunate, that like what the, what the kind of modern progressive view is, is that the less fortunate can do whatever they want because society has done them wrong. And that, um, and, and that corporations that are evil and shouldn't exist. I mean, do you hear this? Like people like straight up don't believe in capitalism or don't believe we should have any markets at all or jobs. And it's so insane. It's like, it, logically, it can't add up. I'm like, well, what are you going to do all day? Like, how are we going to have roads and streets and commerce and get goods to people and services? But so there's a strong contingency of people that, although they don't necessarily practice it right now, if they were sitting here, they'd say, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't believe that jobs should exist or bosses should exist. It's, it's insane. And that was never, I think, what was part of that compassionate, progressive, liberal you know, ideology used to be. The second one here, okay, um, so here's another kind of, tr I, I think, traditional liberal talking point. We should be more empathetic about punishment and maybe only use punishment for its utility and use it when it's absolutely necessary. Well, how, what does that become in the modern landscape? Um, abolitionists, I don't believe in jails. Defund the police, very extreme, absolute positions. Well, that's never what progressives were about. And they would have been laughed out of the room politically as they should. And they would have, and all of the electoral success that they had in the 2000s under Barack Obama, and albeit for a short period when Nancy Pelosi retook the House nationally, any success that the Democrats had never would have existed if they would have had this kind of rhetoric. They, the Republicans would have had a two decade stronghold on this country because it's insane to say those things. And, and then there's here a couple more. And then, so here's another one that I see these on signs all the time. Um, in this house, we believe in science, right? Man, I love, I love those signs. Uh, in this house, we believe in science and science is real. And um, science, what, what, science is a process of like taking in variables and weighing things and going through a process to find things out. It's, it's not a bludgeon. It's not, it's not meant to represent all of your ideologies, especially political ideologies into one thing. That's not what science is. Science means that you have to be exposed to many things and then pick the best one out of, you know, through a process. Okay, what is, you know, what, 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 how is this issue gonna be resolved through the scientific process? And that's, and it's not black and white, but, but, but the, now the extreme liberal ideology that controls uh, at least these left coast cities and is really has a stronghold on the national democratic party. Although I think there's still a fraction there that that's just insane that no, we actually need to have like debate and stuff and nothing's black and white, even in science. And we can get to COVID later, but I think that's where we really saw it. And then the last thing I would say here, kind of like, I think is a distinction between what I thought was a traditional progressive liberal and why I supported the platform, why I'm, and now I'm kind of pulling back from it. I'm certainly not going to the right because they have their own baggage and, you know, that's not the purpose of this conversation. But, um, you know, progressives used to be classic liberals and they believed in things like due process and free speech and, um, you know, the, the, ACLU, the free right? expression of oh, the ACLU is a joke now. Yeah. How, remember, remember Howard Stern was... Howard Stern and Adam Carolla on Loveline, they were they were always going toe to toe with the with the um, communications division and all the Republicans that were trying to yeah. shut him down for saying swear words yes. and, and um, having like sexually graphic uh, discussions. Like like Loveline was always criticized by the right for being too sexually graphic and and it was all it we were really on the left. It was really more about. No, we should be able to say what we want to say, 
even on the radio. It's, um, I have seen so much, and, and, and I'm not that old, but um, I have seen so much of the progressive left adopt similar ideologies to kind of old school conservatism. I mean, there are a lot of parallels. That's one of them. That's a great example right there. And I think we saw some of this with um, rap music in the 90s. That was the right that was pushing against that. Well, it kind of was, except so was Tipper Gore. Tipper, that's, yes, that's yeah, right. That's Tipper right. Gore started the parental advisory right. labels. Yes, And she yes. kept me, Tipper Gore kept me from buying two live crew CDs when I was in sixth grade. Not that I should have been doing that anyway. Is mm-hmm. it, now that I'm a parent of a soon-to-be sixth grader, <laughs> really kind of uh, blows my mind. But... Um, maybe Tipper was right about some of that, but but in general, I just remember thinking, even as a kid, um, as a sixth grader, I remember thinking, why is this? Why is Al Gore's wife, who seems to be so um, progressive and and left leaning, mm-hmm. so invested in this musical censorship? Yeah, and I think that was. Um, I, th- I do think she was. That, that I, was weird. That out, was an out of place. It was out yeah. of place, I think, for where the Democrats were. I mean, and I, I don't want to say Democrats because, again, I think nationally it's a different story. I'd say just the left in the general. Left. I mean, yeah. I would definitely put Howard Stern on the left. I would oh, always yeah. have put him on the left. And yeah. he was one of the, you know, when he wrote, I mean, pri- a lot of the mo- private parts is a fabulous movie. And he wrote that really great book by the same title. And a lot of that movie is just about him fighting for the right to say, I mean, a, a lot of Tipper Gore would have called it smut, I'm sure, but it wasn't anything. It wasn't anything groundbreaking or political. It wasn't. It wasn't like it is now, where like Marty McCary from Johns Hopkins can't can't talk freely about COVID. It was more. Um, you know, the stakes weren't the same. It was. It was more. It, it really was talking about sexually explicit con- content. Although I think you know, with Loveline. I, I think that's a really interesting example because I think a lot of us, so I'm a lot older than you, and a, a lot of us, when we were kids, listened to Dr. Drew and Adam Carolla on Loveline mm-hmm. on K-Rock, which was broadcast nationally, and we listened to it on the radio to get information about sexual education that we, mm-hmm. back then we weren't getting at school. I mean, and I went to, um, not Seattle, but, uh, you know, south of Seattle, the, sort of the armpit of Seattle public schools, which... Um, in a lot of ways were more liberal because the school, I mean, the junior high school I went to was majority black. Mm-hmm. Um, the, not all the teachers were, but, but many were, many were majority, many were minorities, maybe not majority, but certainly the student population was. And, um, really they were, I, I mean, I think the more information, the better. And, and we had to get our information from like the radio. And I just remember mm-hmm. thinking it is so wrong that they're not letting us, hear um, a physician, hear Dr. Drew, really, who I know people are like, oh, he's a TV doctor, but he really is a board-certified physician. And um, to be able to hear, and Adam's just a comedian, but I, I, I like him, I think he's smart, but, but just to hear a doctor um, talk to us candidly about sex and answer kids' questions about sex and sexuality who were too afraid to talk to anybody else about it because they'd be shamed or, th- or they'd be ridiculed and I put I put a lot of those people squarely on the left. Although today, I think most people would say Drew and Adam are extremely right wing, which is so mm-hmm. interesting to me. Yeah, and I I think that I think that's a problem because um, I, th- I think sometimes people will pick kind of what side they're on or whatever or vote based on some pretty narrow things. And so for folks that are that are really grounded 
in I think free expression are starting to 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 be more on the right. Um, even though I think there's a lot of hypocrisy about free expression well, on the right as I well. I agree. But. It's interesting. I, I thought that for a minute. And then DeSantis did the mm-hmm. quote, I, I'm going to call it the don't say gay bill, even though I know a lot of people will say that's not what it says, but um, th- clearly that's stifling speech. They do. They're I hip- mean, they yes. do want to yeah, shut everybody they do. down. They, and that's the problem. I mean, really the divide here is that is is the rise, I think, of illiberalism I mean, both and in policy, just and also in culture about how people want to. The, we, the, we don't care about structures or institutions or these big things that we used to have in common. And, and, and I thought that's where the left prevailed for a long time on the speech issues is that it was nuanced. And that I thought the left really Agreed. understood nuance a lot better than the right. That's why I was a progressive liberal I don't know what I call myself anymore. I, I don't have a home, I guess, but I, that's why I was a liberal because I thought, well, the talking points on the right are very crude and quite frankly, kind of dumb and they don't take into consideration like complicated factors. And that's why I was a liberal, but the liberals now, especially in Portland, these, this far left faction that we're talking about, they certainly don't understand it either. And so, and, and I think that's what we, rational. Well, that's, that's, that is, that is the essence of being rational, is to be able to understand how complicated issues affect each other and that sometimes you might have somebody on TV or just on Twitter or anywhere or in school saying stuff that you don't agree with, but that's okay, and that we need to hear things that we don't agree with. But um, What I else mean, is on your bullet point list? Because I, I, <laughs> I interrupted you for a minute, but no, I was no, really riveted there. I, I mean, that's I it. I want to hear the rest of it. Those are the kind of the major four things, I think, where I have seen... And um, you know those traditional progressive values have been have been bastardized now by the left in 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 the, uh, on the West Coast. Um, I, I think that there is still some hope for on the on the left generally nationwide, but it's I, I mean as we get more divided, maybe not. Maybe if is the Democratic Party is the future of the Democratic Party, San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle, well we're screwed if it is, because I think that most of the country will not tolerate that, and, and it's sad. But I think along these same lines, and I know, um, I, I, I wanted to talk about this because I think I think that you'd find it interesting. I'm not sure how much you've been monitoring sort of what's going on in law schools. And so not about- Not much at all, I'd love to hear. Yeah, so I- You're a lot closer to that. I Yeah, I mean, I just, I graduated a year ago from law school. And so, um, uh, and I, so I was a little older. I started law school when I was 33. And when I went to law school, I, because I think I was so far removed from undergrad and, and honestly a decade kind of removed from my early 20s where I was quite angsty. And so I get where a lot of these people are coming from. I used to have pretty rigid views. And then over time, as I kind of grew up and learned and had some experience, I'm still left. I still have my core values, but I just kind of understand issues a little better and I'm not quite so emotional about things. And that's certainly is not happening on, on a lot, and a lot of the politics happening now, right? So I get to law school, and I'm thinking, wow, this is so exciting because um, law school is is um, it is um, a challenge. It is a grind. Um, it is competitive, um, but also in that, it, it is a tremendous time to learn, and uh, and we learn about heavy issues in law school. I mean, the, the the structure of society essentially can be rooted into the law and what we learn in law school, right? And boy, I tell you what, I get there and all those things are true. 
It's, it's very competitive. It's a very difficult kind of life-changing experience, especially at that age. And um, I was so disappointed. And at first I thought it was just my law school, but as I've been tracking uh, Yale and Harvard oh, and these what's others. what's going on with Ilya Shapiro. All these other schools. And so, I, and, and so I, I've been hinting at it, but what, what, what really is happening is that um, the students, and they tend to be, they tend to be, you know, of course, liberal. In fact, almost always, but, um, and, and tend to be younger, but I don't really want to get into generational stereotypes. I don't like it when other folks, like Bill Maher is notorious for that, and I like Bill Maher, but I don't like that he generates, I don't think that's the right thing to do. Anyway, um, they, don't, they don't like to challenge their beliefs. They don't like to make arguments um, for the other side. And I think that is like the core essence of what lawyers do, is that you have to be able to make your opponent's yeah, arguments so you can anticipate it. And so, um, it, let me just give you an example. I think this was a, this was a, man, this was one of those moments at law school. Where I just remember being so disappointed. Like I love law school, great experience, but there was so much of it that was dragged down by sort of the culture of the students. And quite frankly, the professors and, and some of the other higher ups, um, didn't push, didn't always push back and sort of, they're kind of starting to adopt it, which is a terrible thing. It is a disease that's going to ruin education if people can't, um, if, if people can't be willing to have discussions about things. So there was this, um, there was a Supreme Court case from 1823. It's really old and it's a terrible case. It's uh, Johnson and Graham's Lessie v. McIntosh, okay? And the the holding there, <laughs> I mean, that, we're not gonna get into the weeds of this case, but I just, we have to know kind of what it's about. So the, the idea is that when, when land has been acquired through conquest and the property of most of the people who live there arise from the conquest, um, the people who have been conquered, so the Native Americans, um, they have a right to live on the land, but they cannot transfer title to the land. So it's essentially this, it's a, bar it's a barbaric thing. Terrible thing saying, well, if you're conquered, you can live there, but you don't really own the land anymore because somebody stole it from you. I mean, that's what it is. And, and so you almost Light laugh. Might makes right kind of a deal. You almost laugh when you like, hear about this stuff 200 years later because you're like, oh my God, how it's could like we? It's like the racist grandpa. Yeah, it's terrible. And so, um, so in, as, you, as one does in law school, the professor picks two sides. You represent you know, one party and then, and then he picked, the professor picked this, this poor 24 year old, nice little white Mormon boy and said, you're representing the government. And that's, you know what, that's fine. He picked somebody and we all get stuck with that. We all get stuck in law school having to, to uh, defend a side that we don't like. That is the, that is the whole purpose of it. And so, he, so this is what he says, and he kind of like heavy size and, you know, cause as we all would, and he said, well, if I have to play devil's advocate and then it sort of goes on, whatever, makes the argument. And so I go to lunch after that class, you know, class is over and I go to lunch and I'm sitting there with a group of people and, um, and they sit there and they say, they say the kid's name and they say, oh, that's so typical, typical white boy move. Of course, these are all white women for the most part to say devil's advocate. They always do that. They always say devil's advocate is an excuse to spew their, their hatred. And I, and I was just like, whoa. I said, do, so do you guys understand what, what devil's advocate means? That the whole purpose of that, when you preface something by saying, if I'm, if I'm playing devil's advocate, it means that you don't hold that opinion and that you are yeah, just- You're advocating them. for the devil. Yeah. <laughs> And, I, and so I, I'm like, you guys, he doesn't believe that stuff. 
He was, he was put in a position where he had to answer. He was cold called in class and he had to, I, what would he, what would you have preferred? The, as I asked him, I, I was so taken aback by this because I, I was thinking, wow, law school. And I'm thinking, I, I think that there are ninth graders, freshmen in high school that could understand this, what's going on here. And that these are professional students in law school. These are the future lawyers who, who a group of future lawyers potentially who are saying this. And so, and they're, and they're like, um, they're like, yeah, yeah, no, I, I know, I know. But like he, he said, devil's advocate. And that's what people do when they, I said, that's not what he was doing. He, he, Kristen, he couldn't have said anything. They were going to be upset with him no matter what, because they don't like this idea that they have to make arguments for the other side. And they and qu quite frankly will refuse sometimes often in class, just refuse to, to make and it not just that one, but other ones too. They, they won't make the argument for the other side, even though you need to do that as a lawyer. Even if you don't want to do that, you have to know what the argument is. And you're saying the professors aren't pushing them to do that. Some are. I think some are, and I, I think some are exhausted because what ha because the students, and it, I, I think it's probably, a, it might be, even be a majority, they are um, fierce and um in their indignation, if you will. I mean, it's silly, right? But they, I think that a lot of the professors are probably just getting sort of like burned out by it because everything they do. And I had heard this story from a professor who told me, and we, you hear this a lot about, um, you know, tomorrow uh, or today in torts, for example, we're gonna uh, learn about a, a bridge that collapsed and killed, uh, you know, 10 million or, 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 or 10 people, a terrible thing. I think this is an actual case, right, in the in the Midwest, and and the this kind of the setting of this is a stipulated negligence, and so the discussion is about damages. What should the people get? And this is nuanced because it's like, well, we know that somebody screwed up when the bridge collapsed and ten people die, but how much money do you get? A billion dollars? Do you get ten thousand? What is the number? And 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 people they they're not you know, and so what happened is like a student, and this is I'm, I'm probably mis mixing stories, but a student had told one of the professors like, you didn't warn me about this, and I'm triggered now because I had an accident once, and and I read this case, and um, this is not fair. And, this happened in one of your classes. Yeah, this is a com the, the case combined. You hear with, this yeah. all the time on like Megan Kelly or Libs of TikTok or something, mm -hmm. but this actually happened. I was triggered. In one of your oh, classes. it happens all the time. Yeah. And so, it does happen all the time. And this is something where, oh yeah, this is, wow. this is constant. Oh no, students constantly, um, and, and if they don't, if, if they don't, if, if they weren't the one that was triggered, they will always advocate for the one who was because that is the, that's the liberal, compassionate thing to do. And I'm thinking, how are you going to get through life where you're never going to hear stories of accidents? And especially if you're a lawyer, I mean, granted, you don't have to go do personal injury or something like that. But it's just like, my God, you have to go to law school. You have to go through the process. And I'm, I'm sorry that like, sometimes we're going to hear things that we don't like and that are terrible. And some people are going to, yes, some people are going to feel those things deeper than others. And I understand that. But how do we approach law school curriculum or curriculum in general in education if we're just going to go through and weave out people and not let them have to be part of that class discussion or how are we going to draft exams <laughs> if we can't, you know, uh, if we have to be concerned about 60 different concerns about what might trigger somebody or not. Yeah. I know law professors are getting in trouble for drafting exams in a quote unquote triggering way. It, it's even it, when they blank out the word, like they'll be talking about in an employment context. I, I heard a story about a professor. I'll, I'll link to it in the I'll find it linked to it. I heard about a, st a story about a professor who said something, it may have been the N-word, like incredibly offensive, 
but um, in, a, in an exam, not out loud, but it was in an exam. It was a hypothetical on an exam. And it, like you said, you know, especially when you're doing things like employment law, you're going to hear a lot of incredibly offensive things because that's what drives employment lawsuits are things that people become offended by, um, sometimes rightly, sometimes juries and courts decide wrongly. And, um, but he had, he had asterisked out the word. So he yeah. didn't even use the actual word, didn't but it was it. still yeah. so allegedly triggering. Yeah. Um, and so this is my thought. What do you think about this? So let's say you are that student. You're not going to be a management side employment law attorney, right? You're probably going to be working for the for the people. And that's great. We need to have people on both sides. So if you're somebody who's, I, I think this might be a stereotype, but the, the kind of no, triggered, right. yeah, they're, they're going to be on the plaintiff side, right? They're probably going to represent the workers. But you're also going to have a stream of those workers coming to you. Exactly. Repeating. It, horrific things that are going to quote unquote trigger you. How do you advocate? You'll be triggered by the victim, by your own client. How, how do you, you can't be triggered by your own client (laughs) and, and effectively and zealously advocate for them. No, no, you can't. And, um, (laughs) you, you, you can't. And that's the the facts of your own case. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, you're going to, yeah, you're constantly, you're going to be doing fact finding and you're going to, you're going to, you got, you have to <laughs> read the transcripts. How are you going to the other side? You can't. Yeah. And I, and I don't, and I think that these are the things that I think that the professors, you know, really need to start emphasizing, which is like, we don't hold these opinions because they're in a textbook. Like we don't hold that. Like we, but we need to talk about that. I mean, you need to be aware of you know, a lot of the, the, the issues so you can, um, so you can anticipate them and know how to, to defeat them. And I'm looking here because I had, I was, I was concerned about this. And so I actually wrote, we had a new Dean and I, I wrote him a message. I'm trying to find it now. I should have, this just kind of came up and. Did you hear back? Yeah, but it was like sort of a political answer because I, I raised a lot of these concerns that I had and I had talked about how, and I mean, here's another example. So we talked about, like I mentioned due process earlier. Well, so you take evidence and evidence, I mean, that is um, sort of the essence of trial work, that class and about how, and, and really a, a really cool kind of concept about how you learn about how some piece of evidence may have a probative value, but it may be so prejudicial to a jury that you can't let it in. Right, like prior crimes. Stuff like that, yeah. And, and in law school, people will believe in that rule only when it provides the instant outcome that they want. And that's what drives a lot of law students is we have these, we try to have discussions in law school. We try in class, right? We try to have these discussions about these cases. You're supposed to be engaged in the um, Socratic method. I mean, if anybody's seen that really classic law school movie about Harvard Law School, the paper chase, it's all about the professor challenging the students or sometimes the yeah. entire class, like they'll pick one student and challenge them for the entire class using the Socratic method and just push and push and push. And, and, and so, so here's an example. You'll have somebody um, who will believe in that rule when it provides the outcome that they want, which is, for example, that the sexual predator, for instance, goes to jail, but applied it to a different context, they don't want to use it. And it's, it's one of those things where a lot of law students are so driven by the instant outcome. They just, they want to, they want to just sort of analyze the situation and just provide without going through process or, or an analytical framework, what is the most just outcome as decided by me without using any of the tools of law school? 
I mean, I'm, I'm not exaggerating that point. That it's a very dominant theme of law school. It's very disturbing too, because obviously we have, there's a reason why we have rules of evidence and procedure. And, and let me give you this example. Well, this is a little different, but this is a property. This is a, like a real estate transaction class. And I, man, so some professors weren't as good and this professor was great at this. And um, this professor asked the student a question and he says, you know, somebody was wronged in a real estate transaction. One of those things where it's like you can be you can be duped, but like uh, uh, sometimes the burden falls on you as the person being duped, like in a, a title transfer, because like you should have known better. You should have known better than to just to give somebody a million dollars without doing your due diligence, something like that. Okay, so um, the professor asked the student, one of these people that I'm kind of referring to, this, this is like half of the law school. What do you think of that case, so and so? He says, I don't think that's fair. And the professor pauses and says, um, fair? He says, well, he goes, you're not in fair school, you're in law school. And what is fair is what is in accordance with the law. So why don't you try again? And I was, I just was like, holy shit, yes. Finally, I had a professor who was willing to, and, and on the fly like that, really willing, willing and able to sort of kind of like, redirect a student and be like, what are you talking about? Like, this is not, we didn't, law school is not this process and the law is not this process where entirely where, okay, what is the outcome that we want? We have to have, we have to have, you know, these procedures and these rules and go through these methods uh, to balance all these interests. Again, we talked about weighing and balancing interests. Well, that's what a lot of the law is and it didn't happen. And so it's, um, it's very, it was very disappointing. And so, you know, Going through law school, kind of through the rise of what's been happening the last few years, um, it was it was on my mind. And as I hear stories, which I may sometimes be skeptical of, if not experiencing myself, about education and things that you see, like libs of TikTok, which can be a ridiculous account, but sometimes, quite honestly, they just repost what the person says. And so, and so it's one it's of those like things. Patriot, have you, do you follow Patriot Takes too? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Patriot Takes was like that. So it's like making fun of the right. I, I, it's not as good. Unfortunately, it's not as good. I wish it were better. I don't know why it's not as good. I wonder if it's not as good just be, because if you're on the left anyway, those extreme voices are so loud, you don't really need a Patriot Takes. But I, right. I, I wish it were better um, because there's so there's a lot of good... I mean, all, if they wanted to, they could just follow General Flynn or Marjorie Taylor Greene around. But a lot of the times it's like not quite as good as Libs' TikTok, unfortunately. Yeah. But it yeah. is a good one. If you follow Libs' TikTok, you should follow Patriot Takes. Yeah, no, I, I think I've seen it. And it usually shows up as one, you know, based on your likes. And, so I, and I don't follow Libs' of TikTok either. Most of the stuff I get, I think, is fed by the algorithm, which is like I purposely don't follow it. Which it'll, is garbage. It'll yeah. just make me upset. But I... I come across as it an, uh, of it enough. And so, I mean, I don't know how relevant this is. I just want to share, because this is what I wrote to the dean. I, I was worried, and this is just a kind of a, a snapshot. And, and this is one of those things where it's like, I'm in law school and I'm busy, and I probably took two hours writing this email, but I just, I was like, this cannot be, like, we have to address this situation. I'm just a student. I'm not a professor. I'm not a leader here, but... You know, I'm telling him, I say, perhaps what I enjoy most and what I benefited most about law school is seeing just how complicated or gray the world is and the importance of drawing careful distinctions from one thing to another and recognizing that making opposing arguments to various positions, like those are good things. I said, yeah, these exercises and line drawing and argument are two things that I think the student body struggles with the most. And that I acknowledge, yes, some students can do it, but many don't. 
And I said, for the issues that invoke the most passions, so for example, the, the rights of criminal defendants, the rules of evidence and sexual assault cases, basically anything in con law, students, they have the most difficult time applying the analytical toolkit. They don't, they don't use the, the, these are, the, 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 the framework that you learn in law school is not an ideology. It is, it's like, it's basic core logic of X and Y, and you know, and, and you break it down that way. And so to people that, that, that just sort of ignore that, um, it's mind blowing. And so and here, the last thing on law school, and I think this is, and you've probably heard this too, um, there is this, of course, this movement among these same students, um, abolish the bar exam. Like it is, um, it is, uh, it is an ableist test. Well, abolish the LSAT, racist, for that matter. Abolish the LSAT, which I know they never start there because they always get through that hoop. Right. Isn't that funny how that works? Yes. And as somebody who did much better on the bar exam than the LSAT, I can I, I, I recognize <laughs> the LSAT is a very, uh, it's, it's, it, it correlates, but it's crude. And I think it does disproportionately affect people that maybe have what they call, was that neuro atypical or whatever, or, people in marginalized communities. Now, I think that the answer to that, to fixing those issues is number one, fix the test, but also help people be better at the test. I would think that would be the, the better approach. But I, I guess, you know, where I would start on this issue is that uh, as a, again, what I think is a traditional progressive liberal is um, we have to remedy the wrongs that have been committed in the past and that is still the disproportionate outcomes in education, uh, crime, uh, wealth, economics, property, pro general, pro uh, what we think of as American prosperity, those inequalities still exist as a direct lineage to the past wrongs that were committed in this country. And in law school, one of the things I really that really benefited me was to learn that discrimination was codified, like white supremacy was codified. Like there were rules where you had less opportunities, and and you could just legally discriminate. Totally. Now, now and, and so that those were terrible, terrible injustices that thank God we did away with. A lot of that was the Civil Rights Act, and 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 a lot of laws have pushed. But those laws, the Civil Rights Act and the ADA, which which are just monumental pieces of legislation. The most important thing that the United States Congress has maybe ever done outside of, I believe was it the 13th amendment, you know, there's major things. And so, but, but, but they, but even those pieces of legislation consider variables. So think for example, the ADA. So we accommodate people when it's reasonable to do so, right? And then there's a very complicated balancing and the, the, the courts have come up with constructs to help kind of work through these situations. And so, I mean, that's a little bit of an aside, but I think what I'm, what I'm getting at here is that uh, there is no question that there, is, uh, there are discrepancies that need to be resolved and, and that we need to be actively doing. The problem is, is that who do we listen to or how do we approach it? By abolishing standardized testing, by abolishing the bar exam or the LSAT or these, any of these tests or sort of gateways that disproportionately affect uh, you know, marginalized communities, I think we're looking through the telescope the wrong way. And that, yes, to your point, um, we need to, to, 
to make them better. And we need to find ways to help those individuals do better. And yes, and maybe we also need to tinker with these tests too. I'm not saying that. Yeah, well, and like you said, maybe the test is garbage. I mean, maybe it is garbage. I don't know. You know, I don't... um, Lowry and McWhorter talk all the time on the Glenn Show podcast about how... And these are professors, Mm -hmm. black professors, talk all the time about how, um, you know, there, there is... Although there is data that students who do well on the LSAT tend to and, and well on the SAT tend to get better grades than those who don't and, and tend to do better, there is you know there are also plenty of outliers. I mean, the bar exam is a great example. We all know garbage lawyers. Oh yeah, absolutely. Who had no issues with the bar exam. I mean, go through the discipline pages of the yeah. of the bar magazine any at any time, and you you want you wonder how some of these people pass the bar. Absolutely, it, it's not a good fit. It's the bar exam, and so to, okay, back to the bar exam. Which I, mean, I don't all necessarily disagree yeah. with with the idea that we should get, but like you said, I mean, I'm interested in hearing hearing what you think about getting rid of the bar exam. Well, I mean. I, I just like why do we, why does everything have to be such an absolutist position? When when something isn't working, yeah, like why the police, why is right. it abolish? Yeah, defund, tear it down, tear it down, because because you know what? No, the the the, the purpose of the bar exam and, and the licensure process is a good one, and it's so funny to me. Uh, this I think it is so ironic that the people that, that want to get rid of the bar exam and, and probably they probably honestly would not even want to have the licensure process either, where there was some background and some basic I think they would say that's discriminatory I think they would yeah particularly now with criminal justice reform being yeah. at the forefront I think they'd say look if we have a if we have a criminal background that really shouldn't factor into whether or not we can be lawyers yeah I'm, I, but here's the thing I am sympathetic to the fact that the bar exam and you for the points that you just made it's sort of this it's not a reasonable fit it's kind of like like a little over-inclusive, yeah, no, a little under-inclusive in terms of how it works. And so so instead of taking a radical position, which is just destroy everything, I'm like, well, why don't we come from a standpoint of reform, which I think is reasonable. We have identified an issue. Now let's fix it. Let's weigh all the considerations. Let's have public comment. But, you know, all those things. And so I don't have an answer to the bar exam. I just sort of think, well, let's not, we need to have a licensure system. We need to probably have some sort of exam to uniformly make sure that people coming from these various schools and backgrounds are fit to be lawyers. Um, but I just don't get on board with just tearing things apart immediately. Um, I want to talk about it before we do something like that. I want to, how can we, can we reform things and think about things differently? But here's yeah, the- Slow it down and have, have, a, have, have a, a, a real discussion about it and let's find some data that supports the idea to do that. And so here, I think this is this is I think this is kind of funny and ironic. Is that is that so? You have this contingency of these students and lawyers, I guess, and professors too, uh, that are those group of people we've been talking about who want to abolish it, tear it down, burn it, the whole thing. And I'm thinking, well, your frustration with the bar exam is that it is not good at what it's intended to do. It, it which is so funny because it really is the essence of any kind of. Uh, regulatory body, like I think of like other, let's think of other regulatory bodies, like, I don't sure. know, the EPA or well, maybe like the medical, board, uh, medical right? boards, OSHA, these, these sort of things. And, 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 and the critique, they're almost sort of adopting a conservative critique, which is like, this is like sort of a kind of a big government thing. Like they have all this bureaucracy. It doesn't hmm. really do anything. Yeah, right. And so they, they That's are, interesting. they are adopting they, they are it's so uh, far left it's right it's they're it's adopting libertarian. This position where they don't even like it it is yeah it's an anarchist which is yeah. so far left it, it 
gets right in a lot of ways because it's tear, tearing instead of a big government machine, it's tear down, tear it down, tear well, down the government, no government. You remember that from the, so the Tea Party thing, which was an absolute joke. And, and, and that, that's again, though, that was totally the height agree. of the, you know, kind of the Obama era right yes. there. And, and I, and I used to just laugh so hard because serious people, and probably to this day. Well, now, one of them ran for vice president, right? Um, who was um, Romney's vice president? Wasn't he a Tea Partier? I don't know if that was um, Paul Ryan. I don't yeah. know. I don't. Was he a Tea Party or he might have been? I think of Rick Perry, who was like, so here was like yes. the Rick Perry thing. Rick Perry was say, said Social Security is a Ponzi scheme. I actually I worked for Social Security for almost ten years. So yeah, I, Paul, Paul Ryan. So this is from yeah. the New York Times, uh, March second, twenty sixteen. Paul Ryan faces Tea Party forces that he helped unleash. Mm -hmm. How Paul Ryan got it wrong from the New Yorker, April eleventh, twenty eighteen. I mean, it's he did engage in a metamorphosis, but yeah, he was part. Yes, I remember he was part of that. Sorry, go ahead. No, but the Tea Party was that way, right? They were they wanted to tear everything down, and and Rick Perry said, uh, you know, Social Security is a Ponzi scheme um, because it's paying like in the rears, like it's it's you know the 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 receipts don't match the 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 payouts, and and I'm thinking, well. Okay, they just started off on the wrong foot. They should have structured the program different. Don't tear it down. It obviously does a lot of good. It lifts a lot of people out of poverty. It helps the disabled and the elderly, our most vulnerable yeah, citizens. Yeah, it's part of our social safety net. It's a, it, yes, is it a perfect thing? No, does it need to be fixed? We have to continue to do it. But So that was the Tea Party thing. Tear it down, blow it up. And now on the left, you basically see the left-wing version of that, which is things that we don't like, we want to destroy. Even though we know that there are that, that the entrance exams have good purpose behind them. If anything else, it motivates students to take it serious. And so like with the LSAT, for example, um, that was not a good strong suit of mine. I had to work really hard. Well, I needed to do that to get into law school. And if I could have just you know, not had to do it, I, might, I probably wouldn't have been as good a law student. The same thing with the competitive nature of law school, which um, I didn't talk about, I'll just talk about for a second here. They hate that. Oh my gosh, these students, they hate grades. And they think that grades are ableist, and it, it, I, I, yeah, I'm not exaggerating this this perspective. And they're, how they're ableist yeah, because yeah. they because they pri they reward people who are who don't have uh, um, intellectual disabilities. Or? Uh, I think I think that would be yeah I think that would be the the criticism is that is that people who have intellectual disabilities would not do as well in a like under a bell curve structure of grades because, um, you know, for, because, um, because of the competitive structure of it. There's only so many A's to give out. So they're good. So people that would struggle with intellectual disabilities would get worse grades, notwithstanding the fact that they have accommodations for exams and school right, and stuff. Time, and they have a lot of them. There's a lot of good resources. And right. so, and so, and I, I know that's great. I think we should have those things, yeah, but, but this idea that grades are a terrible thing or that they, they, they call law school, it's toxic. This is a toxic, terrible environment. And it's, um, and, and, and it causes- What are they gonna do when they go to trial and somebody, when they lose, somebody wins and somebody loses? I, yeah, and, and again, and, and it's one of those, and this is the same folks that when it comes to the bar exam, they can't, they can't handle it, you know, because they, because it's, I know I, it's stressful and it's stressful for a reason. And it's hard for a reason because, because stressful. lawyering is hard work and, and it's, and there's a lot of, the stakes are high and that you need to make sure that people are fit to perform that work. But, um, it, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not articulating it in a very good way, but is, is there there, any there's a theme to this. I mean, obviously there was from you, yeah. but is there any, 
is there anybody, was there anybody else um, either in your class or any, any professors go pushing back on this and explaining what practice is like? It depends on where, where, where the rhetoric comes from. So a lot of times it's on social media. You, so we saw like, for instance, on our um, law school, like Facebook page. So everybody in my class had a page where there was a lot of dialogue on there. And there really wasn't, there wasn't a lot of pushback because you know why? Because you don't want to be called um, an ableist or a, or, white, or a white supremacist or all these other things. And so these conversations actually happened on the side. And in fact, what I was kind of scrolling through looking for that message, that was something I shared with a friend. Like, we have to have these conversations on the side. Because if you go out there and you say, hey, that's not like, that's not a really good argument or something like that, you'll get attacked by the mob, right? And this is a real thing. And people, I think on the left, a lot of times they don't, they're not necessarily part of that contingency, but because it sort of like makes the, the liberals look bad, they, they defend it and say, oh, you sound like, like Joe Rogan, or you sound like, um, you know, uh, DeSantis or, or Ted Cruz. And I'm, and I'm thinking, well, yeah, but sometimes there's some truth to what they're saying in their criticism of the left. And I don't like those guys' politics. I don't subscribe to that. But when they say that, that much of the left wing sort of uh, in education or what other professional settings too, it's, it exists in professional settings, but I only see it on Twitter because I don't think these people could act this way at like law firms. But um, no, no, I mean, well, I mean totally, there's a yeah. reason Joe Rogan is the most popular podcast in the world. And I never, you know what's funny about that, Kristen? I never listened to Joe Rogan until the um, controversy came out about the vaccine. He said he got a lot more listeners from that. So That's I, so funny. And of course, and I, why do we always have to preface everything that we're going to say? But I was, a, I am a fan of the vaccine. I got the vaccine, all that stuff, right? I'm not, yeah, of I, course, I couldn't be any further from it. And I think most people are, right? Boosted, but, I'm everything. But the second that you sort of just say like, well, look, can we just hear what the guy has to say? So I had, because he was, they tried to cancel him, right? A lot of the uh, people on the left and Neil Young pulled oh, his yeah. music Make, from Spotify. Oh, yeah, Megan Markle. Yep, all, all, this all stuff. of them. So I, I thought, I thought, and well. And Spotify held its ground. Like Spotify's like. Like Netflix. Um, yep. Dude, Megan, you're not bringing in any money for us. Joe Rogan is our number one podcaster. Like Spotify would die without Joe Rogan. I mean, Spotify did, was, I mean, they knew that they would disappear if they gave in to the mob. Like you totally. said, like Netflix. And, and, and I think, so, so this is what happened with, with the Joe Rogan thing. And this is kind of, I think this sort of encapsulates many of the things we've been talking about in terms of how like there's a kind of toxic ideology that's, that's ruining these like debates and discussions that we need to have. So I kind of loosely follow all the stuff that you just talked about, Megan and Neil Young and the controversy and of course CNN and Joe Rogan, anti-vaxxer, this and that. Boy, talk about a network that has really just gone down to shit. It's CNN. so sad. I used to be the most trusted name in news. I watched CNN for 15 years. I thought yeah. it was the most balanced, fair I know. network. It was the one. It was that. It was that. It was NPR. It was uh, the New York Times. And that, that was kind of the diet that I needed. And then I could filter out all the garbage. And now it's like, and now, now I feel like all I do is... Well, I don't listen to I don't listen to NPR anymore, and I, I don't I, I still have a very expensive subscription to the New York Times. Mm -hmm. I don't watch CNN anymore, but I will say 
I, I do spend a fair amount of time filtering out garbage from the New York Times. Oh, totally. And, and filtering out, like, and I have a very expensive subscription to Washington Post, oh. which I still enjoy, but then I had to filter out all that Felicia Sanmez garbage. That was such a, that was such a disaster. So, uh, so, so I turn on the Joe Rogan thing because I'm, I'm, you know, I want to, I want to kind of hear what, what he had to say. And I, Assuming after all that drama, I thought that he was going to be bag that he was going to say he was Alex Jones. Yeah, yeah that that he, he was, was Alex Jones, and he was going to say microchips in right. the vaccine. Or even if he didn't go that far, if he just had some junk science sort of like ideology behind not having it. Now I don't know if he got the vaccine. I don't care. But he actually defended. He said the vaccine's a good thing. And I said, holy shit, Joe Rogan just said the vaccine's a good thing. And yeah, none of those people were listening to him. And, but but then all these these media outlets and these people that were that were you know they were freaking out about Joe Rogan. Yeah, they were and calling him an anti-vaxer. And he's not. He's not an anti-vaxer. No, he's not. I mean, he actually didn't take the vaccine, but he's and he's open about that. But he's also open about the fact that it's it's important for a, a lot of thing. people, especially old people and immunocompromised people. Yeah, and so you know, it's just it, it's that is that kind of thing, and that's what makes all of this difficult. Is we sort of try to navigate all these problems that we have locally and nationally is that I can't, it's hard to trust anybody. It's hard to trust the news. It's um, for, like you just said, and um, people are just getting so wrapped up in issues and they just cling to whatever their ideology is. Like, it's almost like it's, it's like a reflection of who they are. Well, I am not, I don't have, I don't, I'm not an ideologue. Like I'm, I'm here for discussion. But and isn't I, it weird that our side is doing that? Because do you remember when Obama was roundly criticized for saying that right-wingers cling to their guns and religion? Yes. And I remember him being really criticized for that, but I remember thinking, well, they do. Yeah. And, and, and I remember thinking, and that's really what separates us. And that's why I'm so glad that I, I'm on the left, that I'm a Democrat. And now I'm seeing, I, I think it's easy to be, for me to be critical of the left because I'm, when you're on it, mm -hmm. it's it's much easier to be critical of it because it's your it's your people, it's your side, and so I think it's much easier. It's in a lot of ways you, because you're consuming it, right? So you you're going to see it more because you're consuming all those sources. Yeah, and and it's hard. It makes it really hard right now to sort of be grounded. And so, and we talk about how everything is ideological. And so if, if, if we could talk about COVID, because I think this is a, a good kind of really good application of it. And um, in March of 2020, so my wife was pregnant with our uh, daughter. And, um, you know, I was one of those people where I was actually like, holy shit, this is a weird thing that's going on. Like, I have never seen anything in my life like this, where we had one of these like wintertime bugs stick around to the point where it's starting to affect things in a major way. So I, um, I was, all, I mean, I used to do the thing where we like wiped our groceries down. I didn't know. Yeah, I, I didn't did know how, too. I didn't know how bad it was. And the doorknobs, the doorknobs and, and then, you know, the masks. And I would kind of like outside, I would walk around people because at the time I just didn't have any information to make any decision. And this is, this is the point that I want to make on that. This is in Southeast Portland. And, um, I remember being one of the most cautious people about COVID. And I was like, okay, well, we don't know what's going on here. I was one of the uh, kind of quote unquote extremists for those couple first few weeks. Yeah, we were too. Until, until Donald Trump came out and started to throw some shade on COVID and, and, and talk about how it was exaggerated and things like that. Holy shit, this city on a dime flipped. All of a sudden it was the most COVID conscious Oh my God, like Trump, you know, because and it was, it was rooted in Trump, their response, because they hate Donald Trump so much 
that they just want to take the opposite position of him on anything. And I was like, this is political. My God, we have let one of the most serious health crises in a hundred years, one of the most serious issues ever in my lifetime, we've let them become politicized where our stance no longer is going to be about like kind of weighing this out and what's the process going to be like to, well, if Donald Trump has opinion A, I'm going to have opinion B, you know, just, or whatever the opposite of that would be. And I think the best example, God, this, and this is so crazy. So Trump comes out a few months later and says, hey, you know, we're learning that kids, kids are practically immune to COVID. And of course that was uh, misinformation. Like that's, that's bullshit. Like he's gonna get all these kids killed. And you know what? He kind of was right. And you know, he kind of was right and it wasn't misinformation. And he was kind of, he just was. And I, I'm, again, I am no fan of that man. I know that you're not and that many people aren't. And so like, again, why do I have to preface that before I say something? Because it really should be a different issue. But yeah, when, when he said that, it was pretty much true. And then if you look at the data and what scares so, so many people, I mean, I have a two-year-old and I, I, get to, I get the fear. I get the sense still from a lot of parents and, and especially six, seven, eight months, a year ago. And I'm like, did you guys ever look at the data on this? And that's part of this public health thing where we have to make these considerations about how do we balance the needs of those who are vulnerable and not, and you know, and should we have to wear a mask or not go to Thanksgiving dinner with our family? And these are very complicated things that we need to weigh and balance. And quite frankly, I mean, the political leadership in this state just just botched it, just absolutely terrible. And I don't think people understand. I was fortunate enough last year, mostly. I didn't do a lot of traveling in 2020, you know, whatever. It was still kind of a serious thing. But in 2021, especially when, for example, my mother-in-law got vaccinated, I was like, you know what? I feel great now. Like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get COVID and be fine. And I'm willing to take that risk because I want to live my life. And now that she's protected, whatever. Um, well, and if she's comfortable with it, right? She's I mean, it's like, it. yeah. She's, she wants to she, see her grandkids. Yeah, all that stuff. And But you hear, I mean, I hear stories where, grandparents didn't see their, their grandchildren for years. And I'm just thinking, God, was it worth it? Was it really worth that? You know, and that's a personal decision. So I really, right. I don't want to get involved in that because my thing was at the state level, I was very critical of that because that was a mandate. And if people want to wear masks outside, two of them walking down downtown at this point in the pandemic, that's not me. And a lot of them do. A lot, oh yeah. A lot of them do, but you know, whatever, that's their decision. Yeah. That's fine. But I don't think people realized as you go to other places in the country that the pandemic in Florida and Arizona was a much different experience than it was for people in Oregon. And I think that because of almost this- Almost everywhere. Almost everywhere, different. yeah. Except almost for- New York City, uh, Washington. California, Washington, yeah. and Oregon were the, and, and to some extent Chicago. And the, those were the big outliers. Really where the teachers unions were the strongest. Yeah, yeah, yeah there, I mean, there you go. And that's- it, it, it was, it was, I mean, we thought, I mean, I, I mean, it didn't happen, but I, I told my wife, I'm like, we might want to like move out of the state and not just because of the pandemic, because I don't know if I can trust the, what's the next crisis look like and, and how are, are we going to carefully consider uh, risks and costs and benefits in our public policy? Or is it going to be extremists that is, that is almost that goes, you know, hand in hand or is tandem with with um, illogical fears that happen to be dominant in a particular ideology. 
And I, I mean, I still worry about that. You know, I think that I do think that even Oregon is sort of coming out of this. Um, but boy, the damage was done. And you talk about schools and I've heard the stories from teachers that students are uh, physically violent, hitting each other, antisocial, don't know how to get along because we closed schools. Now, okay, yes, the first few weeks, maybe even months, I get that. But we had enough data by the fall of 2020 that we saw enough kids get it and not die. And we yeah, saw- Yeah, that's when we the other schools were, that was the best observational study ever, watching all those other schools open. It's terrible. I, I, I think it is one of the, the greatest injustices that the, out of all of the, the problems that have that have faced our country, that have faced this state, um, the and, and and not just based on what's happening now with them, but how what a what a terrible way for kids to live. Yeah, David Leonhardt has actually done a really good job in the New York Times of exposing that and talking about how really this these this destruction of businesses, particularly small businesses. The, the prolonged lockdowns, the mask mandates, the the years of school closure, and, and he's and he, he he highlights in the New York Times that um, those those states, Oregon, Washington, California, New York City, Chicago, et cetera, those states and cities, they they really had no better outcomes age adjusted uh, than Florida. Yeah. Yeah. And I get, we have hindsight and I, I get that, but we were, people were, were ringing the alarm bells about the schools early on. And we were saying like, this is not, this is not good. Like, and that we, and, and in fact, even if the was outcomes- Was anybody on the left ringing, I don't remember, was anybody on the left ringing or even in the Democratic Party ringing alarm bells about the schools? Because I don't remember that. I don't think in the national level they wanted to touch it because they didn't want to infuriate their base. They didn't want to screw up the teachers' union. Well, that, and the teachers' union, yeah. They didn't, they didn't want to mess with those things. But You know, actually, you know who did? Um, Rochelle Walensky. And she was promptly shut up <laughs> by the White House about that. Yeah. She, I, do, you, do you remember this? So, no, no, um, no. She gave a speech... She was literally on a step and repeat with the CDC behind her on all the all the logos and everything. She was speaking into a microphone and she said, you know, I think I think schools might be able to open. I think they need to open. I think kids need to go back to school. And she was promptly and immediately silenced by the White House and picked up by the scruff of the neck. And Jen Psaki said, uh, the, the spokesperson for the White House at the mm -hmm. time, the press secretary said, you know, I, she was speaking in her personal capacity. Oh, yeah. Okay. I do remember that. Yeah. And I just remember being so upset. I was so angry yeah. and disappointed. I'm like, now they're silencing the CDC. That that I think that was one of those times where it started to become pretty apparent to me that uh, that the the Democrats and the left weren't. I mean, they weren't ever going to take this serious as a, a public health crisis, and they weren't going to. And they, they couldn't weigh other factors. They could only weigh the virus as if it existed in a vacuum and didn't affect the way people live and interact and go to work and go to school and go to social functions and see their grandkids. Those were never considerations. It was always, uh, what's the case count? And I get the hospital. That's important, obviously, but so is living life. And it's, it, it never was the plague. It was never going to kill a quarter of the population or come close to it. And I don't think that, I think that there was a serious miscalculation on behalf of many of among us, but also all the way up to our leaders. And that, that is what has, I mean, I, I think that it's, it's just has made me so infuriated that I'm almost like one of those people now that wants to like, okay, do I need to vote for a Republican now? 
because like you clearly had an opportunity and you made you screwed up so bad that like I I don't know where where I'm what I'm left to do here. But well, it was going on on both fringes, right? Like David Leonhardt also does a good job of saying, you know, the one thing. Or, or one of the the things that did work that the Democrats did get right was the vaccine. And he says, if you look at blue states versus red states, you will see a mortality difference in terms of who was vaccinated and who wasn't, um, particularly when you adjust for age and obesity, the number one and the number yeah. two factors. Yeah, yeah. But, but I also think that's interesting because it's like, but nobody's nobody's interested in talking about obesity. Yeah. Instead, we're supposed to think like fat is health. You know, Cosmo has had all those um, co- co- magazine covers. Like Cosmopolitan it used to be like the single woman's sex guide with, you know, a size zero, zero model on the cover. And I, I, I'm not defending them on any level. I think they've, they've swung to every extreme um, imaginable. But now, of course, it's like fat is healthy. This is how, like an extremely obese woman on the cover in the middle of COVID, and the headline is, this is healthy. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, and that's... Uh, it's so weird. Be, because um, on the left, uh, with part of this dominant fringe that has become this blossoming right now, quite frankly, um, you know, they're always going to take this standpoint that is just, just... Their anchor is just, how far left can I go? It's not... It's not like, okay, when can we stop and pause and think about this? What is what is the most liberal left way we can go? And that I'm just gonna, every issue, I'm gonna go there. And then that's how I'm gonna draw up my conclusions or weigh the variables in any situation. So in that example, when it comes to obesity and, and the virus. And, well, and, and criticizing Trump again, and I think, I think the right again in a, in a way in which they got COVID wrong, another way, um, it, I don't understand why Trump isn't taking all the credit, not just more credit, all the credit for the vaccines. Yeah, I don't understand it. He rolled out the vaccines. He was Operation Warp Speed, like his mega people, all of them who were saying, I'll never take the vaccine, the vaccine is poison. Dude, your president was, is responsible for them. And thank God he, he was. A terrible political miscalculation on, on his isn't part. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Yeah. And, and isn't it isn't it interesting that yeah. that his own base is decrying the vaccines and was as as David Leonhart points out the data says that that base that refused the the vaccine vaccines were some of the oldest most obese people in in some of the red states and and just many of them died for it. Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, it was absurd that he didn't take the charge. It's just more really on that. too bad. I mean, it's yeah. it's just such a good example of how crazy Trump is. Like, yeah. it's really, it's really a great. It, it could have been a great way for him to, to maybe even uh, scoop up some Democrats. I, with with, I want to talk about the the mass thing real quick because this is a, this is an interesting thing because a lot of the pushback you would see from people um, when you know I started to become critical of the mask mandates when most of the country didn't have them and we kind of lingered onto that and there was some again question, observational study we looked around and we were like oh they seem to be doing okay without the mask and how effective are they and I know that they are effective to some degree and all that but there's some question there and we can have this conversation right so the number one pushback I always got uh, was well it's just a piece of cloth and so with I I have two major responses to that. Number one, well, just, I guess three. Number one, it's not just a piece of cloth. It's weird. 
And um, it denotes sickness and fear. And I don't even like seeing it in the grocery store, let alone at a restaurant or at work. It, it closes off somebody's face and their facial expressions. How would leftists respond if you said a burqa is just a piece of cloth? Right. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Right. And and obviously there are some really heavy kind of other issues going on with that. But but no, I think that's a good point because because it's not. It's it's actually not normal that we go around covering our faces up and act and act like we're scared of each other and sick and that and that, that human experience is is a thing that needs to be talked about and considered. So that, that was the number one thing overall when it comes to the mask. And the the second thing is is that here in Oregon, I think a lot of self-imposed restrictions in business and in the workplace uh, flowed from the mask mandate. So while the mask mandate was in effect, we didn't have in-person meetings. We didn't get together. Everything was Zoom. We didn't have people, people over. Still don't. Our, our neighborhood board doesn't. Still, yeah, and 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 that's, you know, and, 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 and so yeah, it wasn't perfect when the mask mandate went away, but I did actually see, I would be in the elevator going to work and somebody would say, there was like a little party going on and the music and it just sounded so nice. They were having snacks and drinks. And he's like, yeah, it's the first time in two years. And he was so happy. And I'm just like, it's so, so much bullshit that we had to wait that long before we could have this normal experience. These things are important in life, especially when you have a, a hard job that will, where you're going to have some social interaction. And, well, and by then, the, yeah. like you said, the data was there. Yeah. All they had to do was look at it and absorb it. And, th and then this silly thing about how Okay, when you but when we did things like that, we could we all wore our masks into a room and then took them off right. and then ate together. I mean, it was so absurd. It's like on the plane when the fiesta mix starts coming down the aisle and everybody takes the mask off. It's it, it defies logic. It does, and it, it's obscene. And here's the uh, this is a kind of a personal like to the last point. This is a little personal, and I think that my wife had a really strong like a really good sort of response to this. So my wife, she uh, since since birth or very early on has had moderate to severe hearing loss and she relies on reading lips. And so, um, at oh, first, wow. at first when, you know, we had these mask mandates, of course there was no question. And we always kind of mock people that would like the crazy people that would go to the grocery store with the lion's not sheep hat and they wouldn't wear masks. And we're just like, good God, wear a mask. Yeah. You know, I was, I was there at first. And, um, and I thought that the argument about freedom and all that, that's all bullshit. Right. Like the pub freedom. public health yeah. crisis trumps all of that stuff. There's no, there's no right to not being forced to wear a mask, especially when you need to. And, but as it, as it evolves, um, and it, we went later and later kind of into the pandemic, you know, it started to affect how we would do things. Like we wanted to go to, for example, our favorite restaurant, we know the owners and they're very nice, but they would wear masks and my wife couldn't understand them. And it's like, I'd have to like translate and it's awkward and she'd have a hard time hearing me. It's dark. There's kind of noise and clutter. And like, we would go on vacation to places only where they didn't have mass mandates because she wants to have that experience where she can understand what people are saying. But she's not unreasonable either, quite the opposite. And early on, she was, she could have been like, oh, you're ableist for wearing masks. Right. And, and, and my disability you know, is, is, um, exacerbated right now because of mass. No, she realized, she recognized that, that, there, that we had to weigh these things. Well, at the end, I mean, where's the, where's the, that, that where left wing fringe? Where's the calculus? Well, and, and where are they on, on the, when, when it comes to sticking up for people who have hearing loss, yeah, which is a disability about or children with speech impairments? It's yeah. And, and so or I children with hearing loss. 
Exactly. And then also the fact that, I mean, and I I know we don't have the data, but like the kids wearing the masks, it's like they don't wear them properly anyway. At at the daycare that I take my kid to, some of these parents put those masks on the kids and they're never on their face properly. And they're also made out of like that homemade cloth, which the CDC has already said is not effective. And and you need three-ply surgical masks. But like, why are you doing this? Like, what is the point? And, And how, you know, maybe it doesn't affect them. And when I see people on Twitter, like the crying in their car because their kids have to wear a mask. I'm thinking, okay, that's probably a bit much. I yeah. don't think it's that bad. But maybe for, for those that are that have, um, for a lot of kids that have maybe speech issues or hearing issues. Oh, I think it really hurt them. Or some anti- I know like it some, hurt them. Some social. I know, I know. I know yes. Oh, absolutely. And it's terrible that like, yeah, there was no calculus. There was no weighing of these considerations. It was COVID zero and COVID is this absolutely terrifying thing. There's still a lot of people in Portland like that. Oh, it, it's very dominant. What, and this what, zero COVID. What do you think about long COVID? This is such an interesting thing. It you is know? so interesting. Yeah. So I, I am a big fan of this longevity doctor named Peter Atia, who has a podcast called The Drive. And he did a a couple episodes on, on with COVID experts on COVID. And that was the first time I think that I heard, um, he, he was the one who actually said, wait a minute, are you saying? So that was the first time that I heard that there was data that, and it may have been Monica Gandhi who was on there, who was saying this, um, was a epidemiologist at San Francisco and, I, 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 and she had formerly been a big masker. And by the time she was on Atia's podcast, she was saying, you know, uh, the data is really that mask mandates haven't done a lot. And now we have Omicron and I don't think there's a lot there. And, you know, but one way masking works, particularly for like old adults. And so she was saying like, look, I, I put my, I tell my parents to wear an, a fit tested and I make, I, I've taught them how to make sure that it's fitted properly, a fit tested and 95. And I, I, I think that is protecting them. And I think it's important that they wear it, but otherwise, yeah, probably not. And, um, by then she was saying kind of coming around to that sort of stuff, but even she said, I think it may have been her who said, we've looked at the data on long COVID and a lot of it corresponds to people who have extreme amounts of anxiety yeah. and we just can't find a lot of diagnostic or objective evidence to separate the long COVID from the anxiety. And Dr. Atia, who was a, he was a surgeon and he was, he was trained at, at um, Hopkins and he's a, I think he was Stanford under, undergrad and he, obviously a really bright guy, he stopped her for a minute. He's not an epidemiologist, he now, now does just longevity work, but he stopped her for a minute and he said, wait a minute, are, are you saying that there may be no objective data to verify the idea that long COVID even exists. And she, she wouldn't, she wouldn't confirm that, but that Mm -hmm. was what I heard too. And then now of course there's more, there's some even um, I think maybe would be characterized as left wing, like even some like New Yorker and New York times coverage about, well, we don't, we don't really know. Yeah. Well, there, there you go. And I thought, I mean, what, what do you know about it or think about it? Well, about it? there's, I mean, we're kind of too, I mean, we haven't, we understand the virus enough to see how it's been, you know, affecting people in the immediate sense. And so I want to be somewhat cautious because like, you know, I mean, we might need years to really kind of see what the path is. Of course. Is. And I think that's part of why Monica Ghani didn't really commit to the mm-hmm. whether in fact, 
long COVID was really just an anxiety disorder. But, right. um, but I mean, she, she just, she was parroting the data and, and that's the summary that Atia gave, which is, are you saying that the data is that it might just be an anxiety disorder? That, that was what I heard as well. It, but, it, <laughs> but you're right. I mean, we won't know for a while, but, but why, why aren't we talking about how we don't know? Right. Well, and, and also, <laughs> why don't I, we just say that? You know, I, I preface it with saying, you know, we, I, I can't be certain, but I'm also very skeptical. And, 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 and it's, I, I thought it was so irresponsible that the CDC headline, I think it was, was it just this last May that said one out of five people may have long COVID? <laughs> And so, okay, well, for here's the, let's just take the title. I think there was also a CDC headline that said yeah. 80 mass work 80% of the time, period. Just like a blanket, like no, do you remember that? Yeah. No it, differentiation on what kind of mask, how to wear it, for how long. Um, and, it, and, and there was no correction yeah. or, or, and no, no clarification. No, just, just a, a news release. And well, first of all, it says May. Okay, so what does that mean? And then they kind of talk about, they talk about all the data they have and, and they basically say like they've seen this stuff and it could be this and it could be that. A lot of soft language and, and there's all kinds of very complicated cause and effect issues here. Not to mention the fact, let's just say it, that a lot of this I'm sure is psychosomatic, right? Like you talk about, it's it's derives from anxiety. Now you have to be careful with the anecdotes, but I'll just say I've, I think I've known two people who purportedly or three people who have purportedly have long COVID and it is no coincidence that they were the three most um, COVID zero people I know. I'm thinking, holy shit, what a coincidence that the people that I know that were the most scared, that wore all the masks, that did all the testing, that didn't want to go to dinner, that would change their plans and, 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 and it's in pretty significant ways. Again, that's their choice if they want to do that. But it happened to be those individuals or the ones that happened to get long COVID. Yeah, I know. I get what you're saying. Like it would, it would be more interesting and it probably would have um, sort of put a bug in your ear if it had been like the coolest cucumber you knew that was super uh, data-based and doing nothing but, you know, studying the COVID numbers to actually have long COVID. And I'm sure, I'm sure it happens. I'm sure that the bodies are weird and we have different reactions and COVID is a nasty bug and sometimes yeah, people, we don't know. people develop we don't things. Know. Yeah, I don't know, but that's... But, but what what bothers me with it is it is the last thing that people latch onto now because the the data doesn't the cases are kind of flat. I know they're kind of spiking, but the hospitalizations aren't there, uh, the deaths aren't there. In fact, the deaths have really flattened. They have not correlated with the rise in cases in the last two months at all. And so it is it is the last thing that that that, that people, um, and especially in you know Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, they're latching onto. Because they want to return, they they want to have the mask back. They want to they want to do this, and it's like, why are we beholden to people with such unreasonable uh, opinions on important things like public health and what drives that? And why do our politicians answer to that? Because because that is that the base? I don't care. I don't care who it is or what it is. It's yeah, not I good. Mean, it's clearly the base. It's the base. Yeah. But. I mean, that is Kate Brown's base. I mean, we we can. Um, I have the blinds closed because it's a summer day and my AC isn't working in here. But I mean, if, if we open those blinds, and I know you saw it walking over here, we'd immediately see people walking around in mass. I mean, that is our base. I mean, Port Oregon is a city state. It is. 
it, it is, you know, and I, I hated it when they said it two years ago because I don't think it was necessarily true. But now it, wearing a mask is, is, a, is a sign of who I am. It's not, it's not because I'm scared or they might say, oh, because I'm being cautious or they always say, oh, I'm protecting other people by wearing this mask. And I'm like, well, the rest of society isn't. So people that are in it are vulnerable anyway. You, one out of 10 people wearing a mask or one to three out of 10 or whatever the number is, is not doing anything systemically. It doesn't do anything. So like, stop acting like you're helping the sick people by wearing a mask. You're not. Yeah, it's interesting. Like even like I said, even Monica Gandhi was really big into masking for a long time now just says, you know, one way masking works. You know, if you're old, if you're immunocompromised, figure out how to wear an N95 correctly and, and that's what you wear. It's it, but, but guess the people I see wearing the most are the young people. And again, I'll, I'll be very you know straightforward here. I absolutely believe in a business's uh, decision to or, and their autonomy and their ability to have a mandate if they want. I believe in that. Yeah, whatever they want to. Whatever I they, mean, whatever they, they tell do. you need to do to get their services. And I don't have to go there, but I go there and I roll my eyes because it's silly because because the people are all in their twenties. They're young. They're not vulnerable for the most part. I mean, not all of them. Certainly, they all can't be immunocompromised, right? What would the odds of that well, be? If, and if they are, this yeah. is what puzzles me. If they are, why are they going there? Right, yeah, Ex exactly. Why would you take that risk? There, there but... are plenty of people who will, especially in Portland, who who will help you and they will just come to your house and cut your hair. And they'll probably, and I'm sure they'll wear an N95 while they're doing it. Right, but but I think it speaks to this idea. And I think I, we, we had chatted about it offline, but it's one of those things where, um, so it, the reason is, is because they're young and they're super liberal and being young and super liberal means that you have a stance on COVID and that stance is COVID is, is very, very serious and it's a COVID zero approach. And I think what, what I was sharing with you, I just found that to be so ironic that that, that those kind of places, especially that yeah, are so the kind of- people who are least at risk. They're, they're, I mean, not just, not just that, but like these people that believe in this keep Portland weird thing and they're, they're so into this, like, it's almost like a post, like uh, punk, like alternative lifestyle, like, like, you know, individualism and be who you want. But it's an orthodoxy when it comes to COVID or to politics for that matter. They actually, so I thought like, what a, what a weird, yeah. cool thing to be like, oh, well, be who you are, come as you are, do your thing, be weird, but wear a mask. You know, just put it on. Why? We're just being, yeah. you know, we're being extra cautious. Just why not? Just put it on. It's like a, it's like a religion. There can be some such, some doctrines, religious doctrines. Well, I think doctrines it is a religion. Can I think be it's, so absurd, it's, right? It, they don't, I think a lot of people don't have, they don't, I mean, Andrew, this will sound um, very opposite of how I felt when Obama said they cleaned their guns and their religion and that resonated with me. It still resonates with me. Mm -hmm. This will sound kind of opposite of that, but I, I do think a lot of these people are missing meaning in their lives. They, they don't, they live in Portland, so yeah. they, a lot of them statistically do not have that religious meaning in their lives and this is their religion. But you know, it's funny that you said that. I noticed one of Antifa's big things was, was masks. That was one of their big deals was like wear the mask mm -hmm. and they would like show up to counter protest the the um and i i don't i don't know if anti-masker is right because i think a lot of them were just sort of reading data and realize that the masks weren't doing anything but um not because i don't i wouldn't say that they're anti-mask because i think if you injected a lot of those people with true serum they'd say no nah, i don't know if you were if, if a doctor wearing a surgeon wearing a fit tested in 95 is is probably that probably is the right thing to do but um, 
the pe- the people were against the mass mandate, and then Antifa would show up and counter protest against the mass mandate. And I just thought that was so funny that a, a organization that was built upon tearing down the government that vandalized the DNC mm-hmm. here in Portland when Biden won the election. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, they weren't just they're not just <laughs> mad when Trump wins; they're mad when Biden wins. They yeah. hate Ted Wheeler. Hang Ted Wheeler. Yeah. Um, gas me, Teddy. I mean, you see those signs absolutely all over Portland, and he. He literally allowed it to burn for hundreds of days. I mean, it wasn't like he wasn't on these people's sides. It's so interesting to me. Um, but they they wanted the mask mandate. Yeah. They don't want government, but they wanted the mask mandate. Yeah. They love the OHA. Yeah. It's it. I mean, it, you it, you cannot make sense of those uh, two positions or that ideology mixed with with the mask thing. It's it doesn't make any sense. But um, but it checks all the right boxes. The loudest voices in the room. Totally. Yeah. And it's a fervor, and it's it's it's, it's baked into this kind of far left thing, and so they're going to adopt it. That's why they do it, even though it doesn't make any sense. But um, I think it, it just kind of and as a last point, I, I never yeah. introduced myself. So my name is Bruce Garrett. So I am a former. Portland resident. I now live in the suburbs, unfortunately. Um, but I, you know, I, I think of Portland and a lot of the issues that face Portland and these other cities. And there are, I mean, there are just, we have a lot of stakeholders and, and those stakeholders are residents, um, people who own homes, who rent homes and people who don't have homes and live on the streets. Okay. They, but they're all stakeholders and, and we have business owners and uh, they're a stakeholder and we have visitors and we have tourists and they're stakeholders. And so with all of these problems that I think that face the city and really the country at large, like we have to be able to weigh the wants and needs of all these different people and go through a process to determine how are our policies going to apply and benefit you know, each of the stakeholders and that no one stakeholder should have a say, you know, Business shouldn't control everything in Portland. We shouldn't have a Walmart in the Pearl, and that's okay. But then, like, but but, but we're not doing. We're not weighing pe- the, the, all of the different varying interests properly, and and I think that's or really at all or at all. Yeah, and and, and one, it it is one group or one stakeholder that is getting everything and getting their way completely to the detriment of everybody else. And I just don't think that a society should should be run that way. And it's it's insane to me. And I'm glad that you are, you know, doing your thing and, and speaking out and and I hope that things will change. And I think that, you know, November will be hopefully kind of a sign of things to come. But I'm not I'm not all that optimistic if I'm honest with you. I, I'm kind of worried that things aren't gonna turn around politically. Is is it okay with you if I if I talk a bit about how we became acquainted about your yeah. your message? Yeah, absolutely. To me? Yeah. And it said I feel a bit ashamed as I write you this message on the evening of a momentous primary. Last week, my family sold our Portland home and we relocated. We just gave up. I've witnessed in horror the downward spiral of Portland and I never did anything about it except complain in the comfort of my living room. I could have been involved in civic groups, volunteered for political campaigns, or just simply spoke up in public as you have. The truth is I was too scared. I have a young child and I just started a new career, I didn't want people to throw things through my window and I didn't want to lose my job because an online mob was after me. It's hard to say what the tipping point was, the sound of gunshots in our east side neighborhood, the pile of needles we found in our driveway when we got home from a long weekend, the people walking down our private driveway, rifling through our car when we didn't lock it, opening our side gate looking for packages. It could have been the drive home 
where tents morph with large indiscernible piles of rubbish where people walk aggressively into traffic, endangering themselves and others, and where people lay on the sidewalk in the middle of the day, unclear if they are dead or just passed out. It might also be where I work, downtown Portland, a place that in the middle of the day should be safe to walk around. Instead, I'm constantly looking over my shoulder at once vibrant place with sidewalks and urban parks flooded with people from different backgrounds, races, nationalities, and economic classes. Now the downtown looks like post-war Bosnia. Few people brave it. The artwork, innocuous statues burned out, and there are tags and markings left on buildings from a group of thugs the city has not found the courage to stand up to. And all of this just really... Your message meant a lot to me. All this really resonated with me. I just really appreciate you coming on because you could have just said, I'm out and I, I don't want any part of this anymore and I need to just kind of release the stress valve of all my life and just not have anything to do with this anymore. And yeah, I, I guess I'll still work down there, but I, you know, I get to come home and just kind of turn all this off. Um, and so I just, I really, I do really appreciate you coming on. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and, and thank you. And, and I know there are a lot of challenges and, you never want to have these, you know, I, I don't want this to be one of those things where it's just like, oh, I'm complaining and I left. But I, you know, I com- like I said earlier, we complain because well, we care. Work here. And we care. I mean, we, we care about the leave. city. And, and I, we moved here for a reason. And we moved out of necessity. But, you know, Portland is still a really important part of my life. And I just want it to do better because I care about it. And, you know, I, I just hope every day that that... The, you know, those brighter days are ahead, but we'll what see. What do you think they should do? I mean, what do you say to the the people who's, who, and this is a legitimate argument, you know, what do you say to the people who say, look, um, these, the, the, the service resistant homeless that we're seeing, they, you know, Ted Wheeler is offering them, he says, I've, we offer them shelter every time we sweep, say Laurelhurst, we offer them shelter and Many of them don't want it, and what are we supposed to do? Like we're not, we can't we can't force them. We don't have the mechanisms. To the extent we have the mechanisms, we don't exercise them because the ACLU will come in and fight us on that. Um, what what do you think should happen? Yeah, I mean it's tough, right? So if you have a place for somebody to go, um, and they don't want to go there because they just prefer to live where they are or do their own thing. Um, then we have to make a tough decision because, I mean, we can't allow people to just live wherever they want or to live in a certain lifestyle and to have all the downstream consequences to that, which is a lot of the crime. And quite frankly, the, I mean, I think drives, keeps a lot of people away from the city too. Um, I know a lot of people who live far away and like I'm talking very rural who used to come here all the time for shopping and, and to go out to eat and they, they don't do that anymore because of you know, what they perceive here in Portland. And some of that's true, maybe some of it's exaggerated, but no, we, we live in it. We, you and I both know what's happening. I, I don't know, I don't have an answer. I, I think that, um, I, that a lot of the issues on the West Coast cities were brought in by themselves and by their own politics, but to the extent that um, there are other factors, maybe climate, uh, cost of living, some supply demand issues that are driving that, I think that, that we probably need federal resources. We sort of have like a collective action problem where it's not gonna resolve. I don't know, these cities probably need to move in tandem into a better place. I just don't know, but I know that what's working, you know, or what's happening right now is not working. And that if, if somebody doesn't want to follow the rules in society, 
if they don't, if they want to just do whatever they want all the time and live where they want, uh, even when they have other resources that we just can't allow them to do that. And so I would hope that we would have better resources. And do you mandate it? Do you mandate people? I mean, if, if you're living on the street, can you say, well, you're obviously suffering, let's get you a diagnosis, let's treat you. And then if, if, if you continue to do things to harm yourself, that we need to put you uh, in a place where we can help you, where you're sort of, you know, forced to help yourself. Um, I don't, there's a lot of legal and moral issues there that I, I don't know if that's the answer or if that can be it. Yeah. And I think, I mean, your it's, question, it's not a money issue. It's, it's a good question. And it, I think that people like me that are critical need to think about that because it's easy for me to complain. Um, so the question is valid. What is the solution? And I think that I can't give you one right now, but what I do think a solution it, to head towards a solution, we need to have discussions about what is okay and what's not okay. And we need to have discussions about how the, the situation isn't okay. And to say, and to, to have that belief that, that Portland's not okay is somehow a conservative uh, belief or that you're an ableist or you're insensitive or that you uh, lack empathy, uh, we got to do away with that. And I don't know, you know, to get to a solution, we need to start having serious policy discussions. And uh, we're not there because because the, a lot of folks in Portland don't want to have that conversation, but that's where we need to go. So I think if you ask for a solution, I don't have one, but let's start moving that way. Let's have serious conversations and say things like, it's not okay to let so many people waste away on the streets and it's sad for them and it's not good for the community. And if we can just start there, then maybe we can find a solution. Yeah, I, I think your point is a good one, which is what if we just start by acknowledging what we see with our eyes People and stop don't. pushing the narrative that everything's okay. What if we just, if we could just do that, we'd probably get a lot more traction to figuring out, looking at data. So it, every time, and it's usually because I, I don't have a lot of followers, but it's usually when I comment on somebody else's stuff. So if I say something that tends to be a little bit, um, critical of the status quo in Oregon, all of the likes are the same. They're all people with like American flag emblems on their Twitter thing. And they're like, uh, you know, my, you know, my body, my choice, no masks, no, all this stuff. And I'm just like, wow, this is, this is so interesting that, that this comment that I made is being liked and appreciated by those people. And then as I often do, because, and, and we don't spend a lot of time talking about it because we don't live in that kind of the country where there's extreme right-wing politics, but I go after a lot of the stuff on the right because they're, they're crazy and have been for two decades in my view on the right. And so when I go and start criticizing all the crazy shit that's happening, and unfortunately I'm seeing it more with some of their popular candidates like DeSantis, yeah. he's starting to really, really wield that far right stuff. And so when that's I criticize that, guess who all the likes are? They're the people that have the pronouns and the bios and that have the mask and their profile picture. And it's just like, good God, like why, why does it have to always be like, like what are the one other? or the other? I know that's what's so troubling about Twitter. Um, I, I, Twitter has been very valuable for me for this podcast. It's been it's been a way for that I can have discussions with people like yourself, and it's been a way for. I mean, I have a, a one listener um, who's absolutely fantastic, named Susie Randall, who finds me guests on a regular basis. Who's basically acts like my volunteer producer. And, and so it's been very nice. valuable for me, but it's also caused a lot of, um, 
it's 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 a it's a source of stress I think and mm -hmm. it's a source of anxiety and it's it's caused a lot of mental anguish for me just because for for those same reasons I don't find it a good place to have any I think nuanced discussions are the most valuable and I don't find it a good place to have any of those on any level and I won't do it I won't even engage those people I don't respond I don't I just I, I mute them and I, I don't even block a lot of them. I just mute them and I move on because I don't think it's a good um, source of those discussions. And it's the, like you said, it's the most online people. It's all the most, it's either the most right or the most left. But I will say what, what has really upset me about Twitter is that um, the people who have been the meanest have been people on the left. I've received more support from people on the right. And I don't know if it's because they like to hold me up as a as a, a, a kind of a trophy, as like a deer head, yeah. like show the Democratic Party, yep. like, look, even this, you've even lost this person. Sure, you know? sure. That might be part of it. I didn't, I don't get hate messages from the right. And, and when I criticize Trump, I don't get hate, I don't get likes from them, but I also don't get hate messages. I don't get death threats. I don't get screenshots and sharing it to the to the most vitriolic characters who are doxing me and putting my address out there. I don't get any of that from the right. Yeah. No. And why do you think that is? Do you? Do you get any of that? Any hate on the on from right wingers on Twitter? No, no, it's it, it you're right. So again though, you know, Twitter like you said, it is kind of the fishbowl, but yeah, no, it's, it it tends to be more on the left and I I don't know. I think because I know, but why aren't I hearing messages? Because there's like there's you... a there's a battle. There there's a battle on the left right now. It's this sort of like a political civil war in the de in, in, on the left in the Democratic Party where where but on the right too, right? There's the Trumpers and the Never Trumpers. Yeah, but Lincoln, I, Lincoln Project versus MAGA. I think that I think it's small. I think that the faction that is fighting really? against the crazies on the right is smaller, much smaller. I think that it's a tr much truer divide on the left. I think it's almost like nationally, it might even be like 50-50. It's not on the right. I don't think so. I, I don't think that, um, now some are starting to skirt different ways and we'll see what happens when DeSantis uh, runs for president, which he obviously will, and he's probably gonna really be the front runner. Oh, yeah. oh, absolutely. What if Trump runs? I thought he said he wouldn't run if Trump well, runs. Well, I think, I think that's when we'll start to see maybe more of a fraction on the right. Right now, the, the, the left, is still battling with this um, Hillary Clinton, uh, Bernie Sanders thing, and, yes, and they've, 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 we've, we saw that we, because I don't even know where I am anymore. The left has suffered a lot of uh, politically devastating things, and the Supreme Court was a huge thing for Trump, and we saw that this term. And so I know I I think that the 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 people that get the most upset are those on the left who see you or me or maybe your followers or your guests as traitors because we don't because we're we're fighting back and we're saying no 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 we are left but we are not that yeah, and, maybe it, you're and right. it, it's a war and so I think I think that's what's happening is that and you see this on Twitter where a lot of the far left they hate for example uh, is it Joe Manchin and and is it uh, Kirsten. Cinema from oh, cinema. Uh, from Arizona. You're right. Is Kirsten Cinema is Kirsten Cinema a bad? There was a headline. Is Kirsten Cinema bad for bisexuals? Yeah. They they hate those two people more than they hate. Um, uh, I don't know, like uh, Ben Sassy. Is that the guy from Nebraska? The, the the people on the left they hate the moderate Democrats more than they hate stable oh, right wingers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Be, and I think it's because of this this sort of battle that's happening on the left. So I think that a lot of that vitriol and pushback that you see on the left towards 
people like you who are reasonable, rational, tend to be, I mean, kind of moderate, but also not, I mean, I don't think my politics are that moderate. I think they're left. They used to be, I used to be center, like, I, I wasn't, I really wasn't a moderate liberal. I was I an Obama Democrat. I really believed in like all of the things that liberals believed in. But now- I voted for Ralph Nader one year. <laughs> I didn't even, I thought Al Gore go. was too conservative. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And so I, I don't know. I have no, like, I- like data or like serious, like scholarly research to back that up. But I think that a lot of that, make a good point. I think it comes from, from the, the division and, and sort of this own like civil war that the left is having with itself. And so they're going to hate, they're going to hate you traitor, me traitor more than they will hate the other side because they're trying to win a battle and we're making it difficult. That's my guess, but it's not, it's not uh, productive in any day of the week. And that's why I've never understood that those moderate Democrats, I just mentioned those two senators, it's like, do you want the alternative? Do you really want a primary Joe Manchin in cinema? That's never gonna happen, in, especially not in West Virginia. It's not gonna happen in Arizona. You're not gonna primary her because anybody that's farther left at her is gonna lose in the general. That state's red, maybe a little purple. So it blows my mind to see people say stuff like that. Oh, we should primary her. I'm like, well then, okay. Then is 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 the opposite better? Is the other is the alternative better, which is Republicans, and then you lose control of the Senate. And you also see this just real quick on this point. You see this with a lot of people on the left, not necessarily the people out there destroying the buildings in Portland, because I don't think they can be rationalized with. But a lot of people on the left who sort of support that, or or at least are okay with it, yeah, and, and they like they want to tear the system down. And I'm thinking. I know this person who has a, a little boy, he's like 12 years old, and she just thinks that society is so terrible and the whole thing should burn and you know what, like actually violence is okay and that people shouldn't go to jail for destroying stuff. And I'm like, why don't you take that to its logical extreme? Let's have a civil war. Why don't you put your kid out there? Because do you know what that looks like? Do you know what, what a society in like civil unrest looks like? Your son would be out there fighting on the streets. Is that really what you want? Or are you just kind of being lazy about the way you're thinking about the problems and just excusing this stuff without thinking about what it really means to be uncivil and to have brawls in the street? That is such an insane thing that we allow to have happen where we have political factions literally fighting, lighting cars on fire. It's an insane thing. It is not okay. And I, I wish people thought just a little more critically about that. And just because you don't want to have violence in the streets or have things destroyed, doesn't make you right wing at all. It doesn't make you anything politically. It means that you just believe in civil society. And despite all of our problems and how terrible everything, uh, all these issues are getting, I don't think anything is worth d destruction and people dying. Well, you know, in the wake of terrible incidences, maybe we can have, in the wake of George Floyd, maybe there is some tolerance there for some things for from emotion. I, I think that's a pretty sure, left wing course. thing to have. I, I wasn't I wasn't one of those people who was like the, the, the next day being like, oh my god, this lawlessness. Like these people should all be in jail. I'm like, you know, this is a terrible thing. And a lot of things came to roost that day. And and when, when that footage came out and it, when it was in the news. And we saw that and I'm like, holy shit, this is the, the reckoning that I thought we kind of really needed. But boy, the reaction to that and how it continued for years and kind of vaguely tied to it. You know, I'm like, you know what? We understand people are going to be violent and upset. 
but but now that things have calmed down and we're having discussion and moving in the right way, honestly, on a lot of these things, I think the liberals would, would the far left would even agree with that on a lot of the initiatives. It's like, okay, the society is not worth destroying anymore. So when I see that here, I'm just like, you know, I don't get that. It was never worth destroying, but I, you know, it's not, no, we're not in a place where we need to burn everything down and destroy everything. I don't, I don't believe that. And so I, I just can't understand that mentality. And and to your point, just back to what you said about people attacking you, I think they're I think they're worried that they're going to lose, that they're that common sense will eventually prevail, and they're grasping, they're holding on here and attacking because they don't want to. They want to have they want to live in this miserable place where where they can be uh, negative and mean, and they can just hate on the system. I mean, just like the the tweet I shared from the independent in California, what he said, I, th I think that a lot of this is rooted in, in personal angst and these people are lost. Michael Schellenberger. Michael yeah. Schellenberger. Yeah. His, his quote. And, and I think that's what is, so maybe we should, maybe, you know, instead of me uh, bashing that kind of thing, maybe I need to be more empathetic and help these people kind of find their way to where, well, what is it that they need to where, they're not making all of our problems worse by dominating our political discussion. And, I thought you know, that too, but I don't. I don't think so anymore. I no. think. I think those people are irretrievable. They're lost. I think so. Yeah. Have Have you tried talking to them? You can't have a I've conversation tried. with them. Yeah. I've tried. I mean, I and I. I've tried. I've tried. Forget talking to them. I try to just sit. I. I mostly just sit and listen and ask questions. I don't. Sure. I don't even presume that I'm going to evangelize to them. I just want to try to understand where they're coming from. And when I start asking them questions um, and, and it goes nowhere or, or, or I say, well, what do you say to people who, who, you know, you know, like my neighbor who, who thinks that the, all the broken windows and businesses downtown mm -hmm. are, is a good thing. I mean, he was, he was, I, I said, I don't know that that's doing anything to advance racial justice. And he said, well, I don't know. And I said, well, I mean, there is a, he doesn't come down. For one thing, a lot of those people, um, forget Antifa, I know they come down here all the time and they, they're they always here, but a lot of the people, the self-proclaimed liberals who support or at least, uh, at least marginally support some of these Antifa tactics are, they don't come downtown. They haven't been here in years. He actually asked me, right. what does it look like down there? I mean, I live in the inner east side. We're not far, we can see it from, you know, the, the streets. Like we're mm -hmm. not far away from it. Right. And he doesn't know what it looks like. And he moved here a year and change ago and, and he hasn't been down there. So I, I think a lot of them are just willfully ignorant. Like you said, Portland is the most, he was saying things like that. It's the most beautiful city I've ever lived in. It's the most fabulous city I've ever, this is a guy from the Bay Area. It's the most fabulous. I mean, I used to think, um, San Francisco, I, I think it might come back. I, I, I think San Francisco is, is certainly was um, at least five, five years ago, a little more, was one of the best cities in the, in the country, oh, perhaps the world. It's a world-class city, it, or it was. It certainly was. Yeah. It was one of the best cities on the planet, yeah. and to some extent still is. And, I, and the idea that he came from there and is, is singing Portland's praises about how fabulous it is just really astounded me. And when I said, well, well what do you what do you think of when you go downtown? He said, well, I, I just haven't been, you know, I start asking questions. I just haven't been downtown. Well, there's a, I said, well, there's a woman in my, a black woman in my building who owns a business that, that has been completely vandalized into oblivion. What do you think of that? Mm -hmm. Do you think that's helpful? Well, I don't know. I, I don't think a lot of the businesses that have been vandalized are black owned, you know, well, where, where are you reading that? Well, I just don't think, I don't think they are. I, I, I think they're mostly white owned, you know, they mostly go after like banks yeah. and Starbucks. Yeah, and why would that, 
you know, it's just like, it's so silly that we're starting to analyze the destruction and then trying to say, is that okay based on a characteristic of that person? Based on phenotypical traits. Or even, quite frankly, and this, boy, this would really be controversial in a lot of places here, based on the corporate status. I don't think it's okay to burn down a Starbucks. And that doesn't mean that I love Starbucks or I even love corporations and I much prefer to shop at you know, local coffee places or whatever, you know, but, but yeah, I don't, I don't think that we should live in a society where we get to destroy things because we are upset. <laughs> that's not, I don't think that's a radical position. Have you lost friends for saying things like that? Um, I've had to stop talking about this with friends. I, I haven't lost friends, but I've had to stop talking about to, things I've like this. I, I've yeah. lost some friends, but I've also had to stop talking about this with friends. But it's, it's, um, I mean, God, the stories, they go on and on. And I, I, I know I said earlier that we have to be careful about anecdotes, but we do this. And I go to lunch yesterday at a, a franchise sandwich place and the door is busted out of, of, of the guys. This is downtown. This is just a few blocks from here, not far. A and, lot of doors are busted out around uh, here. Oh yeah, yeah, many. And I don't, yeah, to your point, I don't think a lot of people know that until they get down here, um, which is starting to happen more now, I guess. But um I, you know, it's later, I had a late lunch. And so I'm, I had a chance to talk to the guy who's a young guy, he's a business owner, and he kind of like put his life savings into this like silly sandwich shop. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to mean it silly, but I'm just saying like, he's not a big time like restaurant conglomerate. That's what I meant when I, when I said that. But he, he tells me, he said, I watched the video footage and the, the lady that broke in was just really uh, high, like really out of her mind on drugs. And she like got a clipboard and started like walking around the restaurant and he didn't think anything of it and she left. So she broke the door open to do that, which is a terrible thing, an issue that we need to, to address. Literally 30 seconds later, somebody pops in through the hole that she created, puts a hat and a hood over and tries to steal the cash register yeah. and all this stuff. And then he had his jacket stolen. But I was just thinking, my God, I said, you had one person break in and then somebody else 30 seconds later followed them in. They weren't doing that in concert. That was not like they were there together at the scene. This is like just opportunist. One person went in and, and he's like, holy shit, there's a hole in that wall. I just saw it happen. So I'm going to go in there and see what I can get now. And I asked him, I said, I said, I, I assume this isn't the first time that you've been, uh, been, been, you know, broken into. He's in oh, several times and he's been robbed twice with a weapon. Give me all your money twice. That's happened. That's a very I'm serious. He's, yeah, he's managed to. Yeah, he put his life savings into this sandwich shop, and he's trying to be a business owner and make it work. And well, we've been burglarized four times. I, I've, as I've heard, yeah, that seems to be about the number. About four times for every business. Um, a few blocks from here, there's a restaurant. Um, I want to say it's. Um, like uh, Mediterranean, Lebanese, something like that. Yeah, I know, I know. You I know, know exactly you know what I'm talking is. about. They've had the plywood up and down, up and are they still in business? I, I'm not sure if we're talking about the same one. Um, but is I talked to Habibis. Habibis, yeah. Yeah. So I've talked to the owner there because I think it's, it's a such great, a good restaurant, such a great spot. And this was a, this is about eight months ago. I don't know and what's he's happened. He's a sweetheart. What's happened in the last eight months? But I, I recognize, you know, we talked about it, and I said, I, I see, you know, like your something was broken into. And it always it, is. He said it's always broken into. They've stolen all the stuff. They have. Have you heard the story about how he was stabbed? No. This is yeah. And he said he said you can look it up in the paper, and I did. Uh, I read the article. He was um, he was helping somebody who wanted food, and he let them in and was preparing food for them and and he got stabbed by by helping somebody and i and i heard that story and then i looked it up later and i was it's talking to him and i said so i said levels. i don't know how you like 
like, how do you do this? And he basically said, I, I don't want to give up. Like, I don't want to, like, I like my restaurant and I don't want to lose it. So I'm just going to keep going. And, and, you know, these are just two examples of two business owners that I've had a chance to talk to in the last few months. And I haven't had, I haven't canvassed the whole city, but they're, they're, they're are all over the place. And I just don't know how that's not like, why aren't people aware or willing to talk about that? How that's not okay that people shouldn't be held up. I mean, these are, these aren't, break-ins are very serious and, and they need to be treated, well, the but guy, these are violent clear, crimes. Also, the guy who owns Habibis is a minority businessman. Like he's a Middle Easterner. Yeah, it's, and, and. He's, he's not Jordan Schnitzer. I, I think it's, it's hubris. Not a lot that of Jordan people, Schnitzer should be pillory, right. but just, you know, he's not the, he's not but, the man. I mean, it doesn't fit into he's their. He's not white, white capitalist man. It doesn't fit into their, into their, uh, into their, um, you into know, their ideological flavor. stream. Yeah. Like, cause you'd think that that would be somebody who they'd want to protect. Well, we're going to protect them. They don't. Well, ostensibly they say yeah. that they are. Right. This is all in the name of, of, of fighting white supremacy, Right. Why did you, um, this is just like, a, mm. a, I'm just sort of curious. Why did you go to law school? Yeah. Um, I think because I, I wanted to be like challenged and I wanted to have a career that was uh, hard and demanding and that, um, that my talents could be used in, in a better way. So by way of background for the, Almost 10 years prior to that, I worked for the Social Security Administration, and I was, uh, you know, I'm a little bit, I guess, of a recalcitrant. Um, I was very outspoken about what I perceived to be, just quite frankly, bullshit. Uh, the organization's not ran well. Uh, now, now I, I'm a huge believer of Social Security as a program, and it does all these great things, but on the margins, it really fails, which is important because like the, the agency mm -hmm. would employ 60,000 people and has a operating budget. I, I wanna say it's like $14 billion a year or something just to run the program, not to fund it, just to run all the offices and the components and stuff like that. It's, it's massive, a massive operation. And it exists really to serve the margins, to, to kind of deal with these kind of quirky outliers. Most people are on social security retirement, right? And then they get a check and they put it in their bank and they get it until they die. And that's, that's like where the, almost like 98% of it comes from. It's the, it's kind of the disability angle. It's the um, supplemental security income, which is uh, funded through payroll taxes, not through the trust fund that is administered sort of like a welfare program is mean tested. Social security is not means tested. So there's a lot of variables that really get sandwiched into about 2% of everything. And so one of the talking points for years, cause I, I would just complain to the commissioner. <laughs> to the regional commissioner, I would just say, I'm on the ground and I see a lot of terrible things happening here about how we're not serving the public properly and it, it is absolute bureaucracy and that we have people in, in high level decision-making uh, you know, capacities that shouldn't be there, that are just coasting and getting there on their way to the, get their pension. And so I was very critical and outspoken and honestly, it just wore me down for about a decade doing that. I always thought I wanted to be a public servant and continue with that. And I was just like, you know what? No, like this is this is it's never going to get better. The higher up I go, the worse the bullshit gets. And and their number one talking point, and you see this in problematic settings. So like in political settings, like in Portland or Oregon, in in the administration and social security, where it is hubris, it is this like defensive sort of thing about them, where they're like, well, well, we have you know ninety eight percent benefits on time or whatever. And I'm like, you're analyzing the problem wrong. And I am a 
I don't know, GS6 employee. Like, why am I carrying the weight of this agency on my shoulders? And so I knew it wouldn't get better. I knew I needed to get out of the government. I was a little older. I didn't have a lot of transferable skills. And I thought, well, if I could sit here and, and I love my day job, I actually did. It was just the bullshit of the agency that drove me crazy. But I thought, if I can really get into the technical pieces of social security and find it interesting day to day, I can find anything interesting. So I thought law school, which is, you know, a lot of reading and sort of, I think some people think it's mundane. I like it. I thought that would be a good fit. And so I, um, against um, advice from my um, now wife, then just friend, told me not to go to law school because it's all hard and a lot of money. I did it anyway, and, and she very, very supportive, but it was just kind of funny how she was like, shit, dude, you, you have this job, you should just coast, you know? And I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to take a chance, and I did take a chance, and it was the best decision I ever made. It like, is a big chance because oh that's a great job that you had. I mean, it a lot was. of people would kill for that job. And, and I had I had been there for in, in the government. Longevity is what those pays. federal jobs are incredible. Yeah, for that. So it was it was kind of silly, but it's almost tenure. I wouldn't trade it for anything. You know, it was the decision to leave, and and I look back differently now. I was very critical, but I, I really liked the work I did. But no, I, I wanted to move on and, and, and to do something different, and so. Um, I really liked law school and what um, kept you in law school given that there were there was this bizarre climate of just, just trigger ignore warnings just, and you ignore it you ignore it you ignore it. that that's that's something that exists and I and I, I tried to quantify it I said about so half. you never looked around and was like the, uh, yeah this isn't for me not because of that no 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 I really didn't because and again I, I maybe I said half I can't quantify how, like, those attitudes these are kind of like well, and you went to like, law school right. in Portland, right? Yeah, in, in Salem. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. or in Salem, okay, but in it's, Oregon. Yeah, it's very, it has that political climate to it. But again, and I thought, well, is it where I am? But then I see these other schools, like big schools that are having some of these issues, like at Yale, where they refuse oh, yeah, to have- yeah, all the Ivies, really. Yeah. Except maybe uh, the University of Chicago, but yeah, most yeah. of them, yeah, pretty yeah. much all of them. But no, no, I mean, when I got to law school, that was that was annoying. It was it was it was depressing because I thought, what a great opportunity to be here and to learn and, and to, to and to change the way that you think about problems by by relying on like an analytical framework. Okay, like yes, you hold these positions, but why don't you run them through the system and that you can still have a lot of the same beliefs, but you might change some things on the edges and that. So that was, you know, that was defeating, but um, it wasn't like, I was never like, this is not for me because, you know, I think that, that honestly, the practice is much different. And I think well, that what is happening in practice, I mean, as these, not generally, but as, mm-hmm. as these people are from your class, let's say, and, and subsequent are matriculating, like, are you running into any of them in practice? And are they, how, how is that going? I, I don't know. And I, cause I don't have so the same, same kind that. of contact. Yeah. I, not yet. And um, I mean, if I'm going to be blunt, I think that I don't think a lot of them are in practice. And so, so maybe I misstate the numbers when I say 50%, maybe it's sort of like Twitter. I'm sorry. Maybe it's like, it's more like, um, yeah. you know, like 20%, but it feels they're like so 80% loud. because they're so loud. And so, no, I never, I, I always, I thought law school was great and it was a tremendous experience and I uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. And despite all of its challenges and despite having to deal with that and I just move forward and I kind of do my thing now and I really don't know. I don't know how, I don't think it can hold up. I don't think that, that these kind of attitudes that, and, and Th- those people would never they, survive they won't. in practice. I don't think they will. And I don't, and, and if they do to the extent that they are practicing, I can't imagine that they're effective advocates. 
I just can't imagine that they are because you have to have a little bit of tenacity and you have to be a, a little, little bit. Yeah. To, to be able to do the work, the good work that you, that they purportedly want to do for those in need. You're not very, you're not a very good advocate when you're constantly offended and when the system isn't fair, I'm like, well, then why don't you do something about it? And so, you know, there are a lot of very extreme left people that I went to school with who actually, um, they were kind of did that, but I think like, but, but they are doing good stuff. I mean, for what they're doing. And so it happens, but I, by and large, I'm just not sure. And it, but it, it worries me. It's just, a, it's just kind of like a snapshot, but it's a trend that we're seeing in, in education, not just in law school and education. And when I, when I wrote the Dean, I was like, I'm really kind of concerned. Like, I think leadership needs to kind of do something about this, like as educational institutions. And that's what we talk about what it used to be to be a progressive liberal. Like I loved college campuses because they were, the, that's, know, where, the, that's where the smart people we were. We all did. I loved college. That's I loved why we all wanted to live in big cities. Those conversations too. that people had and, and, and the debates and, and, and that politically people come out different ways, you know? Yeah. I had a, one of my favorite professors, um, from, this is about 2007, six, right before Obama and then even dur during Obama. And I'm an Obama Democrat. Absolutely. I think he's one of the greatest yeah, statesmen too. of my generation. Okay. Um, I had a professor who just was like on the right and, and, but I really liked him. I never agreed with him. And I thought that was just okay. Like we had good conversations and we just didn't agree on things, but like, I don't know why we can't have that. Like, why can't our professors or our classmates or our coworkers be, um, you know, disaligned from us politically, but we can still be friends and get along and enjoy each other on a personal level. Um, you know, my, um, one of my girlfriends who's also a lawyer sent me a clip from, do you know Thomas Chatterton Williams? He's a, at Bard College and he writes for The Atlantic. He's, um, one of his parents was black and I, I think he identifies as black, but he spends most of his time in France because his wife is French. And he said, she sent me a clip of him talking and he said, um, now that he's in France, he can really look at America with a, objective, a more objective eye than he could when he was here. And he said, what really astounds him is our, in our inability to have any kind of a civil conversation or a debate about ideas. And he said, we can, we can talk about ideas um, and we can, I can say philosophically or, or given my value set, I differ from you mm -hmm. that he said one thing that we can't disagree about. And, and he said, this is where the far left wing in America comes in. And, and this is every Trump card that they play and they shut down discussion. They shut down debate is with identity. And he said, I can't argue with identity. So anytime they want to shut down discussion, they just talk about identity. And I've noticed that, I don't know if you've noticed that, but I've, I've really noticed that throughout the city of Portland that and yeah. it's, Portland responds to it. I mean, all mm -hmm. these officials throw up their hands and they go, fine, what do you want? I mean, well, AJ Mercury's nonprofit will throw you, you know, OHA will send you, you know, $400,000 and the city of Portland will, will just go ahead and give you a grant for XYZ because you have a, an identity based nonprofit and, and oh, Antifa's breaking windows. Well, fine. We'll just defund the police. We'll just defund them. Yeah. I mean, one thing that Dan Ryan did do that I, I will say that I really, I, I don't know how he did it. I mean, I, I respect him. I, as much as I criticize him, um, I respect him so much for this. He did not vote to defund the police, and his house right. was vandalized seven times. What? I don't know how he did how, that. How does that happen in the United States when, uh, when um, 
a political decision is made, even at a low level like this, and how is that allowed to happen where somebody's, where a, a, a politician, a, a leader, a civic leader's house can be destroyed because you don't agree with the decision that they have? Now, are there times when that's warranted? Yeah, like civil war type stuff. Like things like people are being um, subject to institutionalized things like slavery or terrible, Genocide. terrible injustices. There are, a time, there are times when um, I would be like, yeah, I'll fight that fight. But that's not, we're not there. And the problems that we need to solve are, are, are not, they're just not at that level. And I think to, to see them at that level is just frankly unreasonable. It's not rooted in, in, in any rational like uh, weighing of costs and benefits. And um, it's it's and, and the fact that it's so I, maybe it is just loud. Maybe it's not the majority. I don't know, but but I I don't I don't. It's not like a reasonable way to respond. But also because politically it's terrible. Maybe in Portland it works, but how do you, how does the rest of the country look at Portland in in this response? It doesn't. It's not good branding for the left. And so when it's used as an example of left wing extremism and, and, and when Joe Biden and the debates and, you know, of course, I voted for Joe Biden yeah. and I, I and I because I think that I Donald, Donald Trump is a, is a terrible threat to democracy and a, an absolute joke as a leader. Um, but, you know, was Biden perfect along the way? No. And, and, and one of the things that really irritated me well, he's is certainly that, not perfect now. Right. Well, and, and hasn't been, quite frankly. Hasn't been. And in the debates, some, somebody asked him a question and about his Antifa. And he, like, instead of just denouncing it, he's like, well, Antifa is an idea. And I'm like, God damn it, Biden, no. Like, no, it's, it's Come just, here for just, a while. just speak out. Just, just don't. Why are you so worried about, about these people? Um, on the left, it's like to say that, no, we don't believe in destruction and that I don't believe in destruction and my administration doesn't believe in destruction and that we shouldn't have that. And that I believe that people should be able to protest and express their opinions and wear costumes and have umbrellas. All that stuff's good. Um, well, or say what he said in the State of the Union. We should fund the police. Right. Yeah. Well, things change pretty quickly, I think. I think I, I think things change real quickly. and. I think we're starting to see that, but we need more. I think we need more, more backbone from a lot of people on the left who just are just, you know, you don't have to have every belief that I have. Maybe I'm too quote unquote right for you, whatever, but let's just kind of agree that, you know, I don't think that we're at a civil war stage. Uh, I don't, I just don't think, I don't think we need to do that. When you were telling me the anecdote about that really bad Supreme Court case regarding Native Americans mm -hmm. and um, how the this poor student who was tasked with defending the government on that case yeah. used the term devil's advocate and he was criticized for by by, by sort of using by by that phrase being like a right wing dog whistle or something right um, right right I I think which can be the case I'm sure yes I'll acknowledge well, that well isn't that sort of like how um, I I've noticed that a lot of far left commentators say. And a right-wing dog whistle is, I'm just asking questions. Mm -hmm. And I think that you're right. I think that there is a schism in the Democratic Party between the Portland types and the Biden fund the police types 
or maybe the non-Biden, the more the the people who feel politically homeless right now, who are who have never voted Republican in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think there's a schism there, and I think that the people on the far left are mad at the, yeah. a lot of the the people who wanted the schools open, and they're mad at the people who are against mask mandates, and they're mad at the people who do point out the problems with the vaccines. Like, they don't prevent transmission. They're right. mad about right. people saying that. Right. Um, I think that there is a faction of people who are saying that, like, that I'm just asking questions is... is People who are saying that that's a racist dog whistle, I think those are the same kinds of people that you talked about who are who see people like you and me as frankly traitors and threats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and 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 I I think that I thought that was a good point. And then something else that 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 anecdote made me think of is I have a friend who's a a criminal defense lawyer who I think would make a fabulous DA. And when Cheza Boudin got recalled. I thought, you know, now would be a good time to start asking questions again about Mike Schmidt and the, the job that he's doing or not doing in the city of Portland. And maybe there could be a recall effort, for Christ's sake, if there was a recall effort in San Francisco, how could there not be San Francisco? I mean, uh-huh. which which used to be left of us. I don't think they are anymore. I think they're right of Portland. Yeah, I mean, it could be. At least it, it's showing up in the in in the, uh, the the results in the election, and we saw that in Seattle too. You saw that there was the uh, yes. the DA who uh, the city DA, of course. So it's a little different, unfortunately. But I mean, she was, uh, I think, the city attorney, right? a Republican, but really she was like like so mo- like a very moderate Republican because she, she voted for Obama. And then you saw uh, the two. Well, you saw the in the mayoral election uh, that Bruce Howell won, and then one of the other uh, city council, I, I want to say, was it, um, was it Oliver maybe that was, that, was, that was defeated by a more moderate candidate? So uh, we've seen San Francisco and Portland, um, there's been some reaction, there's been some pushback. Um, and there's so, been pushback yeah. in San Francisco to the, to, the, to, to the extreme left, and I'm not seeing a lot of pushback here in Portland to the extreme left, and I'm starting to think San Francisco is right of us, and I always yeah. thought San Francisco was so far left of us. I, yeah. And it's interesting how that's changing, and anyway, I brought this up with my friend, and I said, I just think you would make a excellent DA, and I think you are electable here because you are a public, not a public defender, but you are a defense criminal. Well, sometimes he is a public defender, but he's um, also a pay-based criminal defense attorney. And I said, you know, I just think, and he was, he's got an incredible pedigree and was in, at a premier firm in private practice for a while. And I said, I think you could win because you have that, you've got that public defender piece and, and the criminal defense piece. And he said, you know, I'm not going to win because I represented, I, I actually, I had a public defense case where I represented a white supremacist where I was appointed. Mm. And I said, I said, I just don't, oh, I, I said, I just don't, I, I don't think so. I mean, I mean, you're, you were defending the constitution, right? You were tasked with defending an unpopular belief. And he said, no, I really don't. I don't, it's, it, it's race-based and I, I think I would lose and I'm not going to do it because I think I would lose. And I, I just think it's a losing battle and I'm not willing to like risk that kind of heartache and headache and, and the calories involved to, to lose a race like that. And I, I, maybe I'm, I'm just too, I just think he's, I just know him and I, I'm too close to him to, to realize the problems with that. But I was like bouncing that off of some people I know and some, people running for office that I know. And I said, you know, what do you think about that? And they said, 
yeah, I, I do think he'd lose. I don't think it's it's rational. But they said the kind of people that are going to campaign against that mm-hmm. and vote against him, the reason it's so infuriating is those are the same kinds of people. You'd think that it's the same kind of line of argument. And actually, one of my girlfriends said this. She said, that is the line of argumentation that goes, you know, the person who, the guy who represented Jeffrey Dahmer was also his personal biggest fan. I mean, those are the same kinds of people that wow. would believe yeah. that my friend is a white supremacist because he represented a white supremacist. Like, just because you represented Ted Bundy doesn't mean you're a serial rapist. But I think, yeah. I can think my friend is right. I think when it's, especially when it's race-based, I mean, that, I think race is the number one most incendiary topic here. And I think that's why when people call you a racist in the city of Portland, that especially if you identify as being on the left, it stings really bad and you do, they shut up and they, the people that are city officials, they hold up their hands and they go, I'm not, I'm not a racist. Let me prove it to you by defunding the police. I will prove it to you. I'll vote to defund the police. I'll I'll vote to put the homeless villages in neighborhoods. Fine. You know, I'll do it. I'll write you a check. I, I think that the, I mean, that's uh, uh, first of all, that's a terrible thing. And I think that is a prime example of somebody who probably would be a strong leader, uh, somebody who has done really yeah, good work. Yeah, but don't you think he'd lose? I mean, I think oh, he's yeah. right. I no, think he'd lose. I think, I think so too. And I think not just the race issue. I think if he would have defended a rapist, it would have been the same way. Yes. Because that, that falls on the left's thing. So so here, and I know this is a Maybe. little bit off topic, but let's- Do you think me too? Do you really think, I mean, I think that was true. Yeah. But post, because that's what Nancy Rommelman was canceled over, was like mm-hmm. pushing against me too. But do you think that post-George Floyd, me too in Portland, Oregon is as powerful as race-based arguments? No, prob- probably not. Um, no. I think race is number one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, that they, in a situation like this, it would, it would, it definitely would fuel it. But but let me c- compare. If, if, this is an interesting thing. Go back to law school. There's a discussion in law school, of course, when it comes to criminal law or uh, criminal procedure. Uh, this, a lot of the students, the, the extremists, uh, they didn't really care about due process. They're just like. Is the, was there an allegation, throw the person in jail? To be damned with the process, which is such an absurd premise, right? That somebody's civil liberties or life could be taken away because of this crime. But what do you think about this? This, um, this sort of like uh, juxtaposition between uh, uh, the fact that uh, we need to believe women who say that they were assaulted. And I am actually, I think that we have moved in a right direction by not dismissing people that are saying that For they sure. were hurt. But and doing the shame-based, terrible, terrible stuff. Slut-shaming stuff. All that terrible stuff that's happened in the past that we're getting better at. But here's here is the, 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 the thing to compare is the fact that, okay, so, so we believe all women always. That's our rule. But what about the fact that we know, and especially in the South, that that many, many, many black men have been uh, thrown in jail because because of because of a false accusation? How do you, That's as a social justice warrior, is about the book? As a social justice warrior, how do you square those two things up? You can't. They are logically inconsistent. You can't hold these two things. Like, well, I believe in you know that I want uh, to make the system better for minorities. Well. Well, and here's a situation where your two, you know, your two beliefs can't can't coincide together, and and they cannot explain their way out of that thing. So, um, I think that's just an example of like where 
it doesn't really work, but I do. I, I'm unfortunately. Well, do you not right. want rapists arrested? Like they want to de-incarcerate everybody. I, do you, you want to free everybody question? from the prisons? I, I haven't actually got a good response from somebody who says they're an abolitionist about well, how they feel about people that are rapists being on the streets. So, are you really an abolitionist? Like no jails? Like even because I thought you that you don't want people to be rapists because that's bad for women. Well, where do you put them? I have asked that question. You know what they say? They say cops don't solve rapes. Oh. Uh, yeah, I've heard that before too. And prosecutors don't either, even though they have like entire divisions um, that are set up to investigate and prosecute people that are uh, sexually violent, like divisions of the prosecution. It's, it's, it's well, stupid. All the most sexually violent offenders slip off the tip of our tongue because they were ultimately prosecuted and made front page news because yeah. they were either killed like 10 Bundy by the state or in prison for life. Um, I mean, we can name them all. What the prison thing, though, because there are people that don't believe in prisons. So what do you do with 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 violent offenders? They they, they might be okay with murderers. Yeah, I haven't received an answer to that. But but the, what do you do with them? I haven't received an answer to that. <laughs> yeah. I receive well, not a good one. I receive Ilhan Omar type answers about well, we'll just tear it down and wait for something beautiful to arise. I mean, mm. what how, what do we do with Ted Bundy while we wait for something beautiful to arise? Yeah, no, I mean it's yeah. So it's so funny that you said you see a, a logical disconnect there um, because I I just had this conversation with some guests on um, the other day about the inconsistencies that I see in the city of Portland. That's a great one that I hadn't thought of. Some others are um, let's ramp up gun laws or even outlaw guns, but we want police to stay out of black lives. Right. I don't know how you get police any closer to black lives than through gun control. I mean, maybe drugs. Yeah. But yeah. ramp up gun control? What do you think will happen with police contact and black lives then? I, there, it's, it's, I, I haven't it's, heard a good an, answer to it's that. It's another one. I, Killer Mike, um, who I believe is, used to be or is left, I mean, he says the same thing. He's like, no, I think that black people should be armed. For that reason, Antifa it, it, says yeah. they should be armed. Yeah. Well, there you go. At least that's at least their Antifa is sticking to sort of like. Although a, that was pre-Texas shooting, I don't know if they're still saying yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. No. Were, they were saying that they should be armed. And then I. And then another issue is where are the environmentalists on the homeless issue? Where are they? They have disappeared. Are climate change warriors? Where are all the people who want all the elementary school kids to walk out of school in protest of ch climate change and run around unsupervised and unfettered in protest of climate change while the garbage all rolls into the Willamette River from the homeless community? It does a lot, and especially along where Grand kind of turns into a highway there. Oh my God. There's that stretch, and it literally is. And There's like you said, garbage. McLaughlin. Oh and cars, ca cars, like cars, they might be there. I'm, I would not be surprised if they found burned out cars in the river. Uh, it is, and, the, and, and do people get around and drive around parts of like down by Milwaukee, like kind of the border of Portland down in that area? It's really, really bad with garbage and um, it's, it's, it's got to affect the quality. Everywhere. But let, let me ask you this one, because along these same lines, I'm sort of curious about this. And I think I saw it in McCreary's um, website about this campaign. You see it a lot in city politics about how, why the hell are we taking up on a city level concerns about global warming? Like how that that is a that is a national, if not international issue. Portland can't do anything with global warming because it has to be solved everywhere. It's literally it's in the 
it's in the goddamn name global, right? Like how does, how, how are these campaigns and these people, uh, around here thinking that we're going to have local solutions to national problems and, and, and to a little bit further. I know the state can help, but the city also with the abortion issue, I'm fiercely pro-choice. I, I think that was a terrible decision that came down last week. Um, for all of the reasons I think that the left is saying, but also like, I mean, what do we, I mean, besides fundraising and stuff like that, or maybe being part of our culture? Yes. But like, I mean, you know, it's going to, it's going to come into the, into the political scape here. Like, well, on the city council, you don't really have much to say about abortion. You just don't, or global warming, or a lot of these national issues are, are bigger issues. And because it, 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 these issues are baked into their political ideology and they can't separate things. Like they have to, they have to use that because it's part of their identity when like, our views on abortion shouldn't even matter or global warming shouldn't matter when it comes to managing the city. Now I happen to hold those liberal views myself, but like, why is that even part of the conversation and the political discourse here? It shouldn't be only to the extent that maybe it, that it helps people in the community feel more welcome or whatever. But, but I just don't see, I don't see how that is. Uh, those, those issues are, are why are they so politically dominant on a local scale? I don't understand that when, when what, what is, is garbage and trash. That is local and we feel it, but yet we don't want to talk about that. And there are some people who have spoken up against it. You see it like on the fourth news article down on a website about how some persons like all these wetlands, these beautiful wetlands over by the, uh, in East Moreland are being destroyed by uh, garbage oh, and trash. That's disgusting. Yeah. That Smith and Bybee, that, all those protected yeah. Yeah. wildlife habitats. It's, we, we did like, you know, used to be able to go down there and bird watch or hike or whatever. And, mm. uh, we made the mistake of taking our kids there like two years ago and it was so harrowing, dangerous, disgusting. I mean, you're avoiding needles, you're stepping over human feces, you're walking past enormous piles of garbage bodies splayed out on sides of trails everywhere, tents up every, I mean, it's just, I, I, I don't, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know where those people are. As far as your question about like why are these local issues, I I think maybe if you and I don't know I I know growing up when I was growing up in the eighties that it was all about there was a lot of environmentalism going on and it was all about do you can do your part like we'd watch all these videos um, I mean back then it was like film it was film reel really mm -hmm. if I'm being honest but it was um, you know you'd watch films about trash and you'd watch films about you can recycle you can do your part recycle do your part don't use for a while that was when everybody had big hair and it was like don't use air don't use aquanet because that's aerosol hairspray use and it was a big thing towards pump hairsprays i remember that that was huge um and it was like we can we can all save the planet we can if we just all do our part then we can we can combat climate change i mean al gore had a whole movie about it right right which yeah. was a, at the time I watched it, extremely compelling and inspiring to me. But then um, during COVID, I was listening to um, this guy, Gary Tobbs, who's a, he's really into low carb, high fat diets. And he was, he's a, he has an incredible pedigree. He's, he's not just like some diet hack. He's like a rocket scientist or something. He's, he's got this background in all these hard science sciences from um, Ivy League universities. And he was on this, this Peter Atia longevity podcast that I listened to this, this other visit, this physician and Gary Taub said, um, they were talking about why the idea of the low carb, high meat lifestyle is so, is so controversial. And he said, well, you know, 
I had, um, there was an article in the New York Times Magazine, the number two most controversial article was, um, what if fat is, is making us thin, something like that. Mm. And then he said, the number one most controversial article in the New York Times Magazine was called Recycling is Garbage. And it's all about how recycling doesn't really actually do anything for our planet and it costs money and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, and then he went on to some other topic and I just thought, I have to read this Recycling is Garbage article. That's sure. interesting. I didn't know that. That's right, interesting. Right. Yeah. And I read it and it, I mean, that that was really when I realized that all of, the, like these Ridwell boxes on everybody's oh, doorsteps and stuff. Yes. I mean, he was right. That You're is a what good the Portland says. liberal if you have one of those, though. It's usually next to one of those signs that say, in this house, we, we believe in science. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and the it's, it's the, they're yeah. the people who don the cloth masks the minute they walk out the door, not because they believe in it, but because you know just to show that they didn't vote for Donald Trump. And I, it it blew this article blew my mind. And I think the reason that we make these local issues is because we are on the left. We're used to hearing things like "you can do your part," and we we're used to these decades of messages drilled into our heads about what's a good thing to do. You know, we don't want to have emotionally charged responses to what are the best policies, and we want to rely on data and statistics to the best that we can and try to make decisions that way, which, of course, didn't happen with COVID. It was a complete joke. A lot of these institutions lost a lot of credibility, and that sucks. That sucks because we needed these we need these places to be pillars, to uh, to be apolitical, to, you know, to respond to the needs of everybody and to weigh lots of factors, and they weren't. They were, you know, in the COVID thing, they were COVID zero or an energy. They're anti-nuclear, and it's really, it's too bad because, um, you know, we need to at least have the conversation Right, I've had the conversation about okay, well, maybe the 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 electric cars, yeah, that's going to be a better way forward than having gas emission. But like, that's not this, the planet doesn't get fixed tomorrow because of that. We have to keep pressing forward and thinking of better ways, you know, to uh, to have an environmental policy that's going to be the best for the planet. And so it's very simple though, right? People think it's sometimes so simple in their in their politics and their approaches to policies. It's just like green cars are good and that is the end of the story. And if you have anything to say about that, then you are Donald Trump supporter. <laughs> it's I don't know what to say to that. It's just like you're not you're not really going to yeah. be engaged in a serious conversation. And then the last thing I'll say here cuz here's a good example. It's some, with 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 the with the homelessness crisis. I was talking to a friend and you know how we said sometimes we maybe don't be friends with somebody anymore. That's not the case here, but I had to stop talking politics because I had a, a friend and he said the only issue behind houselessness homelessness is the fact- You probably did say houselessness. Houselessness, I know, and I probably should. I, I forget the terms I'm supposed to use. Well, and even homelessness, that that was a created politically correct term because right. we don't want to call these people vagrants. We oh, want to yeah. say that they're homeless so that yeah. we can get them homes. That you, was a housing you, you first can never The vernacular, you can never stay on top of it. It's it's impossible. But yes, houselessness. So no, he, he, said, he, said, he said the only, and I'm not, I am not joking. This is a, a smart person but who just- for whatever reason, when it comes to these political issues, can't really think about these things on a complex level. He goes, the only issue is housing. If we had more housing, this would solve Tina itself. Tina says that too. That's really, you think a, a problem as complex as homelessness? Now, would it help? Absolutely. That's it? That's the only thing? That that part of this the, sort of the antisocial culture of it, which is sort of deeply rooted in our history, dating back to 
I don't know, the Oregon Trail isn't part of it and part of this like sort of a mentality that exists on the West Coast in rural parts of uh, the Pacific Northwest, that's not part of it, or that um, terrible drug addiction isn't part of it, or even economic disparity and the fact that lots of people have lost jobs and become drug addicted because of the changes in, in the way our economy works. Uh, there's just a few examples. You don't think that any of those are, that's zero? That 100% of that graph is housing and that those things are literally 0.0 on the on the pie chart in terms of where, where the problem derives from. What was their response? Uh, they don't have them. Yeah. Yes. No. Yeah. I stand by what I said. 100% housing. And so you just you have to disengage. But but I think that is an example of somebody who thinks about it's it is a religion. It is a religion. The politics is a religion because and I mentioned this earlier. There are some crazy doctrines and some religions that we can name a handful of them, right? Like I think like Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism. There's just some weird stuff in there where you're like, that's actually not true, and I can kind of show you how it's not. And when you press and them just on it, regular old mainstream Protestant Christianity, any, any of all it. of yeah, it, yeah, yeah, any of it. But I think when when you press somebody on something that is like the reason they wake up every morning which is what politics is now, and it shouldn't be that way, but it is their religion. When you press them on it, they just, to, to survive and to hold on to those beliefs and that core part of their being, they have to just sort of like turn it off and just kind of like, they have to go deer in the headlights on it because because they can't like they can't process that. They can't, can't possibly think that some beliefs that they have need to be tinkered with or rethought because that would be so offensive to the core of their being. And that is the problem is that, that our politics and our, the way we think about policies shouldn't be, that shouldn't be that. And that, I sympathize. I actually yeah. sympathize with those people. It's I, terrible. Could you imagine? I mean, could you imagine? Yeah. And I don't mean to cut you off, but could you no, imagine, could, could you imagine that it, that, that, that if somebody asked you a question that, that you just had such a impulsive, rigid response, I would, that's a terrible thing for me. I, I would never want to be that way. And so to your point, yeah, I, that's a good, I think that's a very smart thing to say that you sympathize with them. I mean, we should. <laughs> well, I guess the reason I, I have this conversation with my husband all the time where we, because um, we, we have, he's from a Mormon family and a lot of them, are very as as much as I I love them and and this is part of, part of why I love them. They're so goddamn positive all the time. And <laughs> right, right. He's like they don't. Under, he's like so and so. You know, doesn't understand. They don't understand nuance. They they you know somebody dies and it's like oh my god it was such a blessing because it opened up this door or this window or she got remarried and they had another child and what a blessing that was and how wonderful it was that this man's death could be turned into something good. And, you know, you hear this stuff (laughs) come out of their mouth and more cynical people like him and myself are like, oh my God, are you listening to yourself? But then I said, you know what? Um, They're, they're, these people are very happy people. I mean, that is just a fact. Mormons are very happy people. And, and on the outside, now you watch the Book of Mormon musical, which I think is genius. And I, um, because I'm a native Pacific Northwesterner and I'm, uh, you know, married to a former Mormon and I have, I have this big in-law Mormon family. I, I, I see that there is a lot of pain that goes along with that, that they bury deep inside to create this sure. outward positivity. But sure. you know what? It works for them. And if you're a Ryan Holiday fan, like I am like a stoicism kind of follower, mm-hmm. Ryan Holiday will say there is tons of data to support the idea that these Pollyanna types, these glasses half full kind of people, they do very well longevity wise. They mm-hmm. do very well happiness wise. Sure. Um, they have communities. They sure. they they just do 
do well in all these different areas. And I, I, my husband and I talk all the time where I say, um, I always ask the question like, what would you really rather be? Isn't, isn't every once in a while, don't you wish you were them? Like every once in a while, like when I talk to my neighbor and I say, I don't really think this breaking windows thing is doing anything. And he goes, oh, I don't know. Some, there is a part of me that wishes I was him. Yeah. I, and I'm okay with that. And I think that's, that's a good reflection. And maybe this is like, like, wouldn't I be uh, happier if I loved much. Portland? If you just, if you, holy shit. If you I mean, were think oblivious. about it for a minute. Yeah, absolutely. If you were a true believer. Yeah, of course, of course you wouldn't, everything's fine. And you just find ways and you just ignore things and block things out. You're living and, your best life. And that's fine. And, and, and this is, and this is the last thing I'm, I'm, I'm okay with people be, being that way, but not to the extent where they're, delusions, quite frankly, are starting to impede progress in society. And so point. you can I have know. that. Obviously that's obviously I believe that. You can that. have that and I let and I'm fine with people believing that way. But when it starts to kind of ruin or or starts to uh interfere and degrade in livability crime, because you just want to like frankly hurt homeless ignore, people, leave homeless people on the all streets. Those things. Leave yeah. them to die out outside. When you were talking about um emotional reactions, mm -hmm. do you see these reactions on the far right, like this groomer thing and a lot of this libs of TikTok um pearl clutching over things like I'm not talking about school sponsored drag queen shows, which mm -hmm. I think is completely different, but like right, right, right. pearl cl clutching over parents choosing to take their kids to Pride or parents choosing to take their kids to Drag Queen Story Hour. Do you see a lot of that as also being a nutty emotional response? Yeah, I mean, so again, I'm not talking about like the school sponsored drag queen stuff, which I think is a whole other issue. But so, so you're saying like like the, re, the the from the reaction from the right to those things? Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And there's um there so there's that 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 feature on like A and E or something about these kids who want who like want to dress up and they're kind of and and it's just clothing and it's just like performance and and I think that yeah there are some concerns. Um, I think the people on the right are terrible, terrible people about about having those conversations because they can't, they lack nuance, right? And they have for a long time. But no, I think a lot of that is it's just not that big of a deal and that it's being blown way out of proportion. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree yeah, with Oh, you. absolutely. And, and, and they're not hurting anything and that these are just ways Agreed. to express and it's not, it's not any of those things. I mean, I mean, some other time. I could talk for four hours about the right and all the problems there. Since I don't live in it every day and it doesn't control my day-to-day -day life. Yeah, I you're, a, you're you're a you're a lifelong leftist who lives yeah, in Portland. Absolutely, and so yeah, it's not, um, it's it's or absurd. Did. It's absurd, and so yeah, and I guess I would say you know to go on the record then is that like I am not on the right, and I have for decades, dating back to George Bush when I became politically active. Although I look at George Bush now a lot differently than I did then. I know, isn't it funny? He's like yeah. a darling of the left. I know, just it's regular crazy. Left all of a and, and not he to say, in his still he shares mints with the Obamas. Terrible like politics, I think, you know, and looking back I on it. I hated his guts too, but it's yeah. funny. I look at him fondly now. I'm like, wow. oh my God, compared to Trump, I'll take him any day. Exactly. I know, but so yeah, all of that to say that I, you know, spent the last three and a half hours criticizing people that I think used to be politically aligned with me to say that, that I don't like them either. And I think that we all are, you know, I, I don't know how many people are in the, the quote unquote middle now. I don't know if it is the middle or the people that are just willing to have conversations and think, think, think about things rationally. I think but we'll find out in the next more. presidential election. Yeah. And I think we'll find out in this upcoming general election in the city of Portland and in Oregon. 
Well, thanks for coming on, Bruce. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you.